Let's see. Check, check, check. Local's good. My local is going. I turned down my gain a little bit, so I should be a little less hot this week. Hot mic, hot mic. It's just a little hot for my for my taste last week. I'm recording as well. Beautiful. Sean, do you want to give us the clap? Oh, where? Oh, I don't want the clap Whoa. from anybody, much less Sean. <laughs> Whoa, Josh. <laughs> Starting a little soon there, huh? I didn't realize it was that kind of show. Uh, it's a lot of kind of show. <laughs> it's going to be this kind of show. Wow. Hey everybody, welcome to Nashville CA. I am one of your hosts, Sean. With me over there is Josh. Say hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. And this week we have a special guest coming all the way from the best little horror house in Philadelphia, a wonderful podcast that I have guested on myself twice now. Please welcome our guest, George Hefter. Hefler, but that's oh, no. his name. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it's a tricky Sean. last name. Hey, it happens. It so, happens. So unprofessional. <laughs> oh no! What's up, fellas? Happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you, man. Good to have you on. Yeah. So um, today we are going to be talking about George's pick, which is Harlan County, USA. And uh, Josh and I decided to pair that with an old classic, one of my favorite movies, American Movie. So. Um, yeah, how's everyone doing this week? Had a great busy weekend. Uh, officiated a friend's wedding, and it was a, a hard drinking couple. So it was a, a rowdy weekend. So I'm excited to be back into podcasting because I took a little bit of a break. So this is this is me getting back on the wagon. I'm excited about it. <laughs> Josh, how are you doing? Good. It's been. Uh... Kind of a wild couple of days. I got my first pitch uh, as being a movie journalist instead of just music journalist because I'm trying to expand the coverage that we do. So my first official coverage will be the Dear Evan Hansen screening. What's That'll that? Fun. Yes. <laughs> oh, Sean. <laughs> Who's Evan Hansen? Oh, dude, oh, oh gosh. Where do you even start? The guy from Hansen? <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Um, Mbop? I, Sean, I'm going to tell you the real plot of this movie, and you're going to think I'm kidding. But I'm <laughs> okay. It's about uh, a guy who, he's a high schooler, and um, a kid in the high school kills himself, and he pretends that he was friends with this kid who killed himself so that everyone becomes his friend now. Oh, it's World's Greatest Dad. Yes. So, yeah, similar. Somewhere. World's Greatest Dad is an awesome movie, by the way. I, I love Bobcat Goldthwait movies. They're really fucking dark, but mm. really funny. They're good. And the lead teen in the movie is played by Ben Platt, who is, uh, as of this recording, 27 years of age. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was in the Harlan County strikes. <laughs> <laughs> we just watched The Blob. And watching 37-year-old Steve McQueen pretend oh, to be yes. a teenager <laughs> is something else, man. Um, there was a, a fake story going around that they were going to de-age Josh, or Ben Platt for this. 
Um, and I, uh, there was a picture that was just plausible enough that yes. I was like, oh my god, they're gonna do it. Um, have, I believe, I would fixed, believe anything about this movie, I think, at this point. <laughs> have they fixed the rubber skin problem that happens, though, when you make something like Gemini Man, and suddenly there's Will Smith, and then there's latex Will Smith running around together? Not really. No, did you see The Irishman? I, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? That's a good movie. I, uh, I, I'm not that like I, I like a lot of Scorsese, but I'm not his biggest fan. Um, that The Departed kind of annoyed me. I should probably rewatch it. Um, I don't know. I was more of an Aviator guy than well, a Departed guy. Who's got okay. three hours to spare on a movie you didn't care for the first time? Well, how long was? Was that almost four? Um, no. Irishman? No, Irishman. Yeah, it was like three flat, was three. wasn't it? I think so. Was it? Oh, that's yeah. nothing. That's nothing. After watching uh, Dances with Wolves. So what order do we want to tackle these in? Do we want to go uh, in chronological order? Do we want to start low and end high? Do we want to start light and end with real world problems? What are we thinking here, guys? My instinct is usually to get the serious business out of the way first mm -hmm. to then get to your dessert. Um, and also, I like to get to the guest choice first. Um, but I don't know. Have you, George, how do you feel about it? I mean, I'm fine with that. I was going to say, I think that there's a lot of serious stuff in American movie, too. But oh, no, there is. like American movie. It's like it's just as sad as Harlan County. But at least I laugh out loud a bunch of times at the same time. <laughs> true that. True that. All right. Well, then I agree. Let's uh, let's do Harlan County first, then. So our first movie today is Harlan County, USA from 1976, uh, directed by Barbara Koppel. It was her first film. And talk about like coming out of the gates firing on this thing blah blah <laughs> wow i did not know this was her first it's yeah. a heater it's a heater through and through God, damn. also just to invest years on your first project uh who knows if it's going to be good or not well you know uh i read a really interesting quote from her that said that she's a politician first and then a filmmaker second and i think that that uh says a lot about why she would be willing to invest so much time in this story mm-hmm that does, because if you think about the amount of hours that she just spent standing around doing nothing, watching Being people threatened. do nothing, yeah, but not even the threatening parts, just the boredom parts <laughs> of just right. being on the picket line. Yeah. My God, when there's nothing going on, just being out there for weeks and months and months, trying to maybe get 15 seconds of footage, you know, on an entire day. Sure. Uh, it's an incredible dedication to this. Sure. Stay on the picket line, always on the oh, picket line. Oh, the music's so good in this. I love the music in this movie. It's it's amazing. I was just telling Josh that I have, uh, well before this, I had the soundtrack on my phone. And I just will just listen to the soundtrack to this movie randomly. What's the tree one, George? Oh, the tree one? Let me uh, we, look it up. We will be as trees, we shall not be moved, or is something uh -oh. like that. Um... Yeah, the that's a that's a, a famous one though. That's like I don't yeah. think that's specific to the coal mining. It's like um I know which one you're talking about. The lyrics are escaping me right now. Yeah, but anyways, um <laughs> loved the music, especially loved the guy I call him Uncle Bill of Harlan County. The guy who sits on the front porch and <laughs> yeah. sings in the first he's one of like our first locals that we meet and he's mm -hmm. just singing. That guy's real Uncle Bill vibes. He's great. He's great. 
So if you watch this on uh, Criterion Channel, if any of you have that, there are several like behind the scenes uh, talking head kind of interviews. There's a lot of outtakes uh, oh. from it, which I would imagine there'd have to be just because of spending over the three years. It, yeah. yeah. Um, and also John Sayles talking about Harlan County, which I think John Sayles has a great film brain. So to hear him talk about it is really cool as well. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I uh, just have my own copy of it. Didn't even think to check uh, the Criterion channel. So oh yeah. I'll have to look it up. Sean. Both of you, but sorry, I was going to ask if both of you have seen this movie before. Oh, that's a good, that's a very good question. Thank you for, thank you for taking over the hosting duties that I'm neglecting. That's great. <laughs> you must have your own podcast. Uh, no, never seen this. I've heard of it and I took a documentary class in college. So watched a lot of different stuff there. Um, but this one never made its way over to me. Um, and I was really happy I did. It's, I had seen it, uh, three years ago, I think in kind of a spate of going through documentaries again, which for me just winds up being circling Errol Morris because <laughs> I love what that man does, especially his early documentaries. And we've talked about this a little bit on the group chat, uh, how his movies are some of my favorites, but I think this one stands right up there with the best of them. Like, yeah. and it's more timely now than ever. Like in so many respects, it's kind of heartbreaking how on the nose this still is. Yeah. Yeah, I um I have seen this movie many times now. I watch it every year on Labor Day and I credit it pretty seriously um with really kind of opening my eyes to how impactful documentaries can be. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I had seen a lot of documentaries prior to it. It wasn't like my first one or anything. I had loved a bunch of them even, you know. Um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, this sort of idea. Not, I mean, obviously, it's a fascinating documentary about a sushi shop, but also what it had to say about familial relationships and uh, escaping the shadow of uh, family by being younger but not being as supported, but getting to sort of establish your own thing. That was something that I was able to relate to as a younger brother myself. But this impacted me in a way that no other documentary had. Um, I have always been a liberal, but this like really kind of shook me. (laughs) This movie really, it, it, it came into my life at, at a a time when things were beginning to become, uh, unrestful, we'll say, um, or at least when I was becoming more aware of it with the, um, Occupy Wall Street movement and sort of the the huge outcry against Wall Street that was very visible to me. This was not something that I had uh, encountered in my home life in a suburb. And then when I moved to Philadelphia and there were people protesting every day on the streets, um, you know, it was something that hadn't really uh, entered my life in, in, in a tangible way until that point. And seeing this movie just really makes me like think about seeing that and it it really kind of brought it forward into today and in a way that you were talking about how timely it is and how fascinating and applicable it still is and now going out myself and protesting over the summer in the racial justice uh, protests and everything and taking part and and seeing the the strength in 
solidarity that these people have today in the 90s in the 30s it's it's something that i think kind of transcends the time period it was filmed in in a way that makes this movie just ring out so incredibly well mm-hmm. i yeah i think you're absolutely right that human stories don't really change the circumstances might but in so many ways humans we all kind of live a similar story in a lot of ways, and so there's just the cyclical nature of things. And I think the way this is presented, especially without narrator and so focused on just the town without putting too much, too many pieces of culture into it or pieces that mark what time period it's from. If you know, if you change the cars in this movie, this could still be have been filmed two years ago because yeah. of the music that's used. Um, the fact that it's there, there is no presence of the documentarian really, aside from when she is confronted directly. Um, so, <laughs> and I moment. really respect that about her. That you know, and nowadays a lot of documentarians like to make themselves the prime character. Yeah, and then the documentary is kind of their experience doing something, and it, which can be valid. But I, I don't know. I think there's something more true about the verite style. Yeah, have you? Did you watch that Apollo thirteen documentary that oh, came out? Oh my god, that thing was incredible! <laughs> so oh my, I, 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 I'm sure I teared up a few times. Had complete body goosebumps at some points. The footage that they got was amazing. The fact that they had all of this audio mm-hmm. and were able to clean it up and then present a narrative without ever using a narrator. That's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's really incredible. I think that it brings something up that I find really interesting in cinema, which is sort of this uh, Brechtian take on it, which is, is it more important for someone to be able to slip into the movie, or is it more important for them to be able to engage with it in a way that's going to give them the message? And, you know, that's something I go back and forth on, and I think that that level of uh, of hands-offness of of letting like with the apollo 13 documentary that really lets you slip in it felt like i was there it felt like i was watching it and that that would never be able to be uh that would never be able to happen if i was constantly being talked at by a guy you know um it's it's remarkable so i was going to bring up a very similar point but i was going to use uh ask you if you had seen uh the documentary the act of killing I'm not. Okay. Oof. That That's a one, good one. It's it is fantastic. Sean says no. <laughs> Sean says I have a mouthful of water. No, I have not seen it. Okay. Um, He's saying no. I hate that movie yeah, so I, much. That's where I no, don't talk it. about it, Josh. Stop. <laughs> Do not throw to me. I hate that movie. <laughs> so um, there's uh, two documentaries I hated back to back. The the act of killing. And then I do not remember the name of the second one, but it's the same documentarian. Um, and the journey he is on, you, you're so identified with one person yet. It is one of these big political mm-hmm. um, topics that he's tackling, but it's, you're kind of going through one person's lived experience and then how everybody else impacted him and his family's life. And seeing that approach, that very, personal approach versus this one which is uh except for i think the like the the presidents of the companies and the union nobody gets names hardly 
in this in uh, Harlan County. Everybody is just presented as one, basically as one uh, voice until they start bickering amongst themselves uh, as being this town, as being Harlan County up against this kind of immovable object. And did you have a take on something like the more personal uh, style versus something like this where you are more fly on the wall? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I I guess it's kind of a question about what the goal of the movie is. I think that certainly if they're looking to evoke an emotion in me, like Jiro clearly is trying to do, mm-hmm. um, then doing the, the personal kind of take on it and, and having these interviews with people and, and really talking and talking about their emotions. Um, that's what lets you connect with them. I think in a way um, that lets you put yourself in their shoes in a way that's more um, fluid than the fly on the wall way. I think that fly on the wall is great for sort of communicating an event mm-hmm. and a situation. And the personal is more personal. It's exactly that. It's it's about communicating that one person's story. This is not to say that there is, it's not possible to flip that. You know, right. there are examples. I think that this does a great job. This movie in particular does a great job of having that fly on the wall style, but still letting us uh, interject ourselves into their emotions and, and sort of feel that we, through the usage of uh, just the, the footage choice, mm-hmm. um, I think that they do a really great job of making you feel the emotional impact of what's happening, even if even as it is less focused on the individual. Right. Which totally makes sense. I think that's a great point that it it doesn't need to feature an individual and necessarily to like hit me on a personal level because I feel like I understand kind of the totality of of this situation um, until the event later, which definitely features one person. Right. And that that hit me hard. Um, Both times I've watched it, I remember it's just it's kind of striking because everything else is very open. Yeah, this I mean, look, I hate myself for what I'm about to say. It's going to sound incredibly pretentious. I feel it coming. <laughs> Bring it. But Bring it. This movie to me is very close to like a tone poem. Um, okay. the use of the music, the way okay. that it is both diegetic and non-diegetic, it mm-hmm. it kind of wraps you in. It it's your, it's our way in. It's one of the first things that brings us into the movie. Um it's all about that conjuring of emotion, even though it is the fly on the wall style. And I think that the way that it does that is by creating this tone poem, this feeling, tome. this tome. It's a classic tome, folks. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's a tome. You know, you get it. Yeah, that's all you need to say about it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I'll, I might bring up a counterpoint here where versus American movie, which we'll talk about later. This one felt a little more I felt this one a little more on like the brain side than on the heart side. There was definitely emotion involved, especially later on, but and with the anger and um futility that people felt. But having one character arc it does make it easier for me to access not empathy I don't want to say, but uh just to have a, a more emotional response because I'm there with that person, and that's kind of the person that I'm I'm going with. Yeah. And so they're kind of my they're kind of my tour guide through these 
emotional waters or whatever. No, so, I, I think that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I I would just I only think that with this movie, the way that they um, do utilize the emotions of the people, you know, when we're when when that woman faints, <laughs> yes. the end, yes. yeah, <laughs> like, and I think that by expanding the scope uh, of the movie a little bit, it lets you sort of see the impact overall, not just on one family in Harlan County. But when I watch this movie, part of the reason that I tear up is because I genuinely feel that these people are like American heroes. Mm -hmm. They were out there putting themselves on the line. They're like, they're icons or they're icons. They're icons of the the (laughs) labor movement, (laughs) icons of the labor movement. And you know, the, the bad rap that unions get the way that, people fight so hard against unions it makes me so sad and when you see the way that these people worked together to achieve something great for their community mm-hmm. um that to me is the real emotional punch it's as much as there are the moments that i talked about where you get to sort of see the impact and the toll that it has on individuals even if we're not getting their names really um the way that this has sort of shaped or or rather even not shaped public thought, even as it shaped some of the politics of the the community, um, I, I just think is is fascinating and emotional and and something that I've never seen done before. And just in case anybody's wondering which side uh, I'm on, here is one of my prized possessions. It's Woody Guthrie's artworks. Wonderful. And it's just like a bunch of his songs and drawings and things that he had done. It's basically like parts of his scrapbook. And uh, I think if you're interested in the movement, the the labor movement from the time period, uh, definitely the the songs on this, but Woody Guthrie really captured a lot of the sentiment about the workers' rights. Yeah. From from the time period. Cool guy. Uh, yes. Excellent. Uh, so right. do you want to start going through the film a little bit here? Um, yeah, let's do it. So I thought the, the opening, I had forgotten this from the first time, but it's fairly cinematic because we're introduced to kind of the setting through the characters of the coal miners themselves as they're making their way down into the mine, riding on this huge conveyor belt. <laughs> And the roof of the mine is like zipping above their heads just a few inches. Uh, and everyone kind of has to like lay down. And I can just imagine the cameraman like <laughs> basically laying there and just dealing with it. I have so many thoughts about this intro a few minutes. Yeah. So many. Lying down, going head first on that belt yes. looks really fun. <laughs> but riding that belt into the mouth of hell, as these guys do, yes. it's like a fun roller coaster into existential dread yeah. for me. I'm not really a claustrophobic person, but I'm not burrowing into the earth. That's <laughs> warm shit. I don't do warm <laughs> shit, okay? Uh, this ceiling is, the guy says later, he's talking to the cop, 42 inches. Yeah. Ground to floor. That's the clearance. Those flat cars that they have, that are like 18 inch tall, two feet tall cars. Yes. Those are really, really cool. I love seeing uh, problem solving, uh, creative engineering like that where people hack together machines in order to solve a very specific job. 
the the thing that got me in this beginning because I did you see the one guy standing on kind of the rollers and surfing down a little ways before he drops down onto the conveyor belt. I'm like, this looks kind of fun. I know <laughs> that they're going to get black lung down there, but this part's not too bad. Mm. And the moment it hits me is they're down there, they're working the machinery, they're they're digging out the coal and sending it back up, and you see one of the workers move a support beam. He has like just this big hunk of wood that's a support <laughs> beam. And I, I'm like, that's... If that mountain decides to come down on you, that's not going to do shit, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I, when he's hammering that wedge in for yes. that support beam, I'm just like, my heart's stopping. Yes. It's crazy. I've seen a lot of cave-in movies, and then when you see actual real footage of that one in Chile a couple of years ago, or it, it's mm-hmm. it's truly some of the scariest, worst working conditions on the planet. And that's... This movie has some of the most tense scenes that I've seen in movies, mm-hmm. uh, which is really saying something for like the very kind of flat uh, presentation that it's given. Everything is very factual. Um, there is a couple moments where I think, you know, they mess with editing a little bit to, to heighten it. Um, but we see these men working in the mine, sending the coal back to the surface. One of the old timers tells a story about one of the times that the bosses uh, told him to make sure that the mule he was working didn't get trapped in a cave-in or have rocks roll on it. And the old-timer says, what about me? And the boss responds, well, we can always hire another man, but we have to buy that mule. So, oh. so fucked up. Great. It's a perfect tone setter. It's yes. a perfect tone setter. But that does make me kind of happy that maybe they took slightly good care of their mules. Maybe they weren't <laughs> completely abused 100%. Maybe they were just like 90% abused. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the same guy says that he started working at 10. And I think it's the same guy. And there was a strike because they got six and a half cents. And through unity and solidarity, he said, you can beat the capitalist. And they got a raise to eight cents mm-hmm. uh, an hour, which was a huge deal for them. Uh, those photos of children working uh 10 year olds 11 year olds um scary just haunting especially when you see what they're doing sitting with their legs over the moving conveyor belt picking out pieces of slate and how fucking dangerous that is sitting Mm -hmm. on moving equipment like that man this is scary stuff i also think that they do a great job of kind of introducing the thesis here at the beginning where they demonstrate sort of the two opposing complaints towards unions, where you see Basil Collins, Satan himself, being like, Jimmy Hoffa's in prison, everyone knows the unions are communists, <laughs> like, they're, it's just bad news. And then you see the other guy, who is one of the scabs, being like, oh... Uh, unions are, everyone knows that if you pay, like, if you force them to raise the price, or the, to raise your wages, then that's just going to raise the price of the goods. Everyone knows that that's the way it works, so that's why unions are bad. Which is, of course, ridiculous, because mm-hmm. that only is true if you accept that the bosses should be making as much as they are making, and that that shouldn't change to reflect the increased wages for the pe- people lower on the totem pole. Um, I think that uh, it, they have those two pe- those two guys get to say their say, and then shift to this slate picker who talks about how you have to go up against all these organizations at once, the police, the government, even the churches in the area, 
coming at them and how solidarity was the only thing that kept them going through that strike. Um, I think that it just does such a great job of establishing what they're going to be trying to communicate uh, in the rest of this movie. And how painful is it that that is still the conversation that we're having uh, on the national stage as far as trying to raise the minimum wage for, you know, fast food workers even. Yeah. Like people who don't have the the uh, luxury of a union, who don't have that backing, and what can they do at this point? And I mean, this movie shows you what you should be able to do, which is rely on your brothers who are on the same plateau as you are and move everybody forward. You know, you have to like let in the water that raises all the boats, but if not everyone does it, then it's really hard going. Cause we see what these scabs do to the, do mm. the whole process. There's no healing for a scab. They say this no. movie also really made me think of COVID where they talk about unity and solidarity, you can beat this overwhelming thing. Mm-hmm. And that's like the entire experience of COVID. Mm-hmm. If everyone had gotten on board and had been unified and actually done what needed to be done, we would have been through this thing so fast. But yet we're still here uh, 18 months later, mm-hmm. and things are almost just as fucked as they've ever been because yeah. there's been zero unity and no solidarity. Yeah, and you know, Josh, I know that it's just a phrase, but you said you can rely on your brothers. I think it's important to point out the Brookside's Women Club in yes. this movie. Um, I mean, absolutely incredible. Uh, Bessie Lou Scott, who watched her grandfather die of black lung as a young girl mm-hmm. and recognized that these are the enemy. Uh, Sudi Krusenberry fighting for the future of her two young boys. You know, she has that great line later. She says, I'm not after a man, I'm after a contract. Lois Scott unbelievable incredible speaker who makes you believe it when she says i'd rather be dead than know their scabbing at brookside yes. you know they at several points throughout the movie the women of of uh of this area of harlan county are the ones who really keep it going who keep the heartbeat of the strike going um there's there's people saying like the women are showing up to the picket line and there's like five dudes there right. <laughs> and and like 15 20 of the women and the fact that they were there working for it because, you know, at the time there was a, a, a saying of feminism was uh, the personal is political. Mm-hmm. And I think that these women recognize that at their core and understand that they are fighting for their families by fighting for these workers' rights and and fighting for uh, these increased work conditions. Um, and I just think that the way that Barbara Koppel is able to capture the impact of the Brookside's women's club is, mm-hmm. is just incredible. It's so unique to this story, I think, uh, or at least to filmmaking that I've seen um, and in terms. And I think that because it is a woman behind the camera, that's definitely helping her to, to capture that perspective. Um, I understand that there is a little bit of irony here in three white guys, <laughs> all, all, all bearded white men <laughs> talking about how important it is that she is the one behind the camera here for this story. But I think that it is still the case um, that she brings a unique perspective to it and captures something that is actually integral to the story. Um, I didn't get her name, uh, but the older woman later who has the line, um, 
they can shoot me to death, but they can't shoot the union out of me. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. Like yeah. that. <laughs> she's, she is ready to go to the mattresses. Over <laughs> this. That's and right. you see the women later on when it, when it gets more towards violence, really step up to the plate and arm in arm singing in front of uh, a wall of scabs of gun thugs, as they call them um, <laughs> with guns aimed at them yeah. at one point. And they're just, st- they're standing there singing protest songs, blocking the highway. Get ready to fight fire with fire. Yes, exactly. So uh, at, after this, they, this is where around where they do a lay down protest, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. So a bunch of them lie down in the road to block the traffic. Um, they get pulled into their cars and are uh, taken away. While they're in the jail, they say, you might as well be in here because you're a prisoner out there, too. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Um, we find out that uh, Duke Power is the primary nemesis in this movie. And Duke Power also sounds like a fake name that Homer Simpson makes up for himself. <laughs> <laughs> also sounds like those Duke boys are at it again. Yeah. <laughs> Duke Power has been housing its employees without water or indoor plumbing. Um, and so I, you know, the people, it's not even like they're asking for riches. They just want to <laughs> live a decent life that's right. not completely completely in shambles. Yeah. The, the way that Barbara and her team show a lot of these things, where you get two or three hits of, having to realize that they don't have running hot water in their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody says it, we see a child taking a, a bath in a, in a metal tub on top of a stove. It looks classic like. tub bath. Yes. <laughs> and the kid can't fit in the tub anymore. And I'm like, Oh God, that's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, we didn't address the actual, the, the main conflict here is during the summer of 1973, the men of the mine vote to join the, the United Mine Workers of America. They vote to join the union, essentially. And the owners refuse to sign the contract, and so the men go out on strike. That's the, the impetus for everything else that happens, is, is that uh, moment of them demanding to be part of the larger union. Um, and I love how you get the, the uh, idea that this is something that's passed down through the ages from these people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of the one woman talks about growing up, hearing stories about her grandfather organizing, like after dinner, he would tell them stories about organizing and the importance of uh, standing next to your neighbor. And it's the only way to fight the capitalists basically. And I just, I mean, it's, we don't have a lot of legacy things here in America. I feel like a lot of like, these kind of traditions that you get in older countries because yeah. everyone is constantly reinventing themselves. So to find these threads, these familial threads that impact their daily life, I think is really special and really important. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting that I, this to me is so much closer to the idea of America mm-hmm. that, that that people have than what actually like the founding fathers and everything is. Cause you know, people talk about that being this in- incredible rebellion of the people and, and how it was the proletariat rising up against the tyranny of the monarchy and they cast off their shackles and, and, and freed America for everybody. But obviously we know that that's not really the case. They were also rich white guys. They still had slaves and everything. Whereas you cut over to this and it is genuinely 
these oppressed people who are being trod on, mm-hmm. banding together, finding that unity and that strength and togetherness to to see to stand up for themselves against someone so much bigger and more powerful. And when people talk about the spirit of America, to, that's what they're talking about, and that is this movie, and that is solidarity is what they're talking about and mm-hmm. and i think that this movie captures that in spades so sean talked about the uh duke power which is our central nemesis along with the bitumen coil owners association uh, they come in later as kind of the overarching umbrella uh, of the the bad guys uh, on the side of big business and Every time one of these dudes comes up here, yes, <laughs> these guys get up and they're always titled president of Duke Power, president of the BIPOC Association, or whatever it is. And you see, like, I'm just like, I wrote down these, these assholes, this asshole, <laughs> like every single time, because they look smarmy, especially towards the beginning. They laugh. Mm. The one guy gets asked about the workers conditions and he kind of laughs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, it's just disgusting. Because we spent the last 15 minutes living with these people. Yeah, I mean, the attorney for the coal company who says that there's no relationship between coal dust inhalation and pulmonary difficulties is yes. just like, it feels like a punch in the gut. Like That they have guy, the I want to just slap that guy straight across the face. <laughs> and then they cut to the blackened, crumbling lung that, like, the guy yeah. holds up in one hand and it falls there, apart. The, the town coroner interrupts the, the, like, the meeting to hold up dusty old lung tissue and so these are your friend's lungs and it like <laughs> it's like dusty old wood pulp and it's disgusting and and that guy still just stands there and st- looks him straight in the eye and says there's nothing wrong with it uh yeah there's also so one of the main reasons that we're talking about unions is because of how dangerous the coal industry is mm. and so we could look at um, a company called Col- consolidation coal um they had a guy named John Cochran, who is their spokesperson. He looks a lot different than Johnny Cochran. Um, <laughs> sure does. Consolidation Coal got 16 extensions on their inspections, and they were never compliant. And then after this, there's a massive explosion, which kills, I believe, 78 workers and only four escape. And so this really, this scene here, this happened a few years before. It really sets the tone for... What's really at stake here is not only living conditions, but life itself. Yeah, and the way, I think that that's another great example of the, the collaboration, the way that these systems hold themselves up. You know, the woman talks about the police trying to kick her out of the area so that she couldn't see what was happening. Um, and, and the way that the police sort of are there to protect societal norms, and what societal norms are is uh, Duke Power running roughshod on these guys or whatever company it is um and uh yeah that explosion is just outrageous um uh, it's it's shocking so not only it's horrific enough that the 78 men were lost in that explosion but they didn't just die they were trapped and died and we get some of the um the the spouses of the victims talking about it about hearing uh, the the one guy didn't want to go to work that night and he was like considering not going in. And then finally he kind of beat himself up enough until he goes in and that's the night of the explosion. And so she knows she was one small decision away from having her husband still. And that even that 
uh, decision-making process speaks to the conditions that they were already living in. The fact that he felt so compelled that he couldn't take one day, that their conditions were so poor that missing out on that day's wages would be uh, imp- impactful enough that he had to go in despite his unease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it's the kind of thing where it's a vicious cycle uh, in terms of the way that people get sort of uh, crushed underneath. And you get the the conversation later between the two men as they're going to vote for ratifying the the later contract, uh, where they're talking about how many sick days do they get granted versus how many should they have. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, we only get five, and that's ridiculous. And he's like, well, yeah, if you take it. He's like, no, I can't even afford to take those, because then yeah. I have to go to the doctor, and I have to pay for the doctor. Like, I have to have a note to... Uh, be qualified for a sick day and that's more money out of my pocket. So you might as well just go to work sick, which yeah. is there's, there's a great scene edited in here where the miners make a trip to New York city, to wall street, to protest in front of um, wall street and yeah. tell people that this is what's happening with Duke power. Uh, one of the miners gets into a long conversation and we stick with it with a police officer and the police officer who I assume is unionized says he's making seven bucks an hour. He has full medical, full dental. Free. His, Free his medical. Job is, yes. Yeah, his job's a bunch of bullshit. It's easy. And then you look and you see this guy who's working himself to the bone, and people are dying around him, and they can't even get any benefits. Yeah, and before the angry letters pour in, he says his job is easy. This is not yes. Sean saying. <laughs> yes. And Oh, well, all right. I've, I've worked with some cops who cover, like, events and doing marathons and stuff. They just stand there. Yeah. I used to work in events and I would have conversations with cops like this sometimes. I just like, say, so you just stand here and make overtime, huh? That's pretty rad. Pretty easy. Pretty damn easy. The, uh, the coal miner in that instance points to the light post across the street and says, we lose a man a day to power these lights. Think about that. A man mm-hmm. a day. Yeah. With the amount of electricity that they're using there. Yeah. That's insane. That's and it's heartbreaking. And I think over and over again, <laughs> there you can't help but be on the worker's side on this. Yeah. Like I feel like if you put down the biggest the biggest fat cat capitalist, he would at least have to side with the workers on this in this movie. Like yeah. it would be a leg in. <laughs> I think it's so funny that this cop is like well, you've convinced me. Like, this is yeah. great. You guys are going to do, you're going to be amazing once this gets going. And he's like, we've been out here for nine months. And the cop is like, nine months. <laughs> I thought this was day one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After this, we, um, we get an interview with a guy who has black lung. And this was one of the scariest parts of this entire movie for me. Because he's just sitting completely motionless. And yet he's gasping for breath mm-hmm. as he's just trying to conduct this interview. And he talks about not being able to walk more than a few feet. And later we see he has some kind of lung uh, inhaler or some some kind of like big, giant, scary looking inhaler that he has to blow into or it blows into him. I don't I know it's, how it's it how works. you like test your lung capacity. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, that stuff scares me, man, especially just like having smoked cigarettes for 13 years and having felt like fucked respiratory lungs and gasping for breath and just having it lung infections and stuff it's really really scary when you can't breathe george yeah. i know you 
No, you know that. Yeah, yeah, I had a, a, a asthma attack with uh, combined with a panic attack, and uh, those and, are two bad attacks to combine. <laughs> yeah, yes. and and that was while I had an upper respiratory infection. It turned out so. Uh, wasn't that, my favorite trip to the ER or several days after that, <laughs> but, uh, God, yeah. dude, that's sketchy. And considering how minor that is compared to Black Lung, uh, right. you know, it, it really holds a mirror up to that, that it was, it was so terrifying for me to live a few days like that. And, uh, and, and it was a, a minor, minor part of what they're dealing with. It's, it's it truly puts a perspective on it that's shocking for me that's exactly what i was thinking of um i don't know if you had listened i think i talked about it in an earlier episode i thought i was having a heart attack and i went to the hospital um and it turned out i had uh, pneumonia and I was having a panic attack yep and uh they put me in uh like a chamber thing like an oxygen chamber essentially uh and did breathing treatments like every 20 minutes for the rest of the night and thinking about these guys who, let alone the fact that it's almost 40 years ago when this is happening, yeah. so technology hasn't caught up, but what is the medical infrastructure in that area to even take care of these men? What is the tax base that would support that sort of thing? Oh. Do we have the doctors there that they need? And we find out that they don't even have the many doctors in the area, as somebody says at one point. Um, and it's just, it's horrifying what we, I mean, we as a society would put these people through so that we could have cheap power. Yeah, you know, um, there's, there's no such thing as unskilled labor. Mm-hmm. And these guys are putting themselves on the line for us to enjoy modern conveniences and be able to sit at our offices and go clickety-clackety. And yes. call that a job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it really makes it very frustrating when the conversations around things like minimum wage are so dehumanizing. You know, people who work at fast food places, just because they work there doesn't mean that they don't deserve to live a life. Right, You know, like when people are like, how dare they have a smartphone? Like the idea that you can't have the slightest amount of luxury, which is also basically a necessity at this point for the most part, um, that that shouldn't be afforded to you, that you should have to live like an animal because you have the indecency to be poor. Right. Is uh, an affront to me personally. So uh, what do you think about we are introduced to the current union president? Uh, right as he's going to start running for re-election. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his notable achievements is the fact that the men in the un- union have the opportunity to work on their birthday for triple pay. That's is, Isn't that something? I think that's pretty neat. It's like <laughs> yes. his, his attitude about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, no, dude, that's not fucking neat. <laughs> pay them and have the day off. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. yeah. That, and uh, we go from there to meeting one of his opponents, Jablonski. Jock uh, This guy looked mafia through and through. <laughs> Jablonski yes. did. I would not mess with that man. Just from he's only featured for I don't know, less than 30 seconds with his talking head stuff, but he mm-hmm. looks scary. <laughs> well, why does he only have that much time? Yeah, this 
this blah, blah, was, again. This, yes. this was shocking to me because, yeah, well, there's a guy named Boyle who's the current head of the U, uh, UWM, UMW. Yeah, uh, U, no, United Mine Workers. UMW. UMW. Uh, so he's the president. Uh, Yablonsky's running against him. Yablonsky, his wife, and daughter are murdered in their house. Um, the, the, the next election, there's a guy named Miller who takes Boyle's office. And then two years after that, Boyle is convicted of the murders of those three people. Which, I mean, it's one thing to kill a political person, but his wife and daughter, what the, what's, what kind of fucking monster are you? Yeah, and the, the, I think it's very impactful when his sons are there talking and they talk about how they wanted to carry their father, but... Ultimately, they decided that it would be more appropriate for them to carry the daughter and the mother and for the coal workers that their father loved so much to be the ones to carry him to his uh, his funeral. That broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Nobody should have to put up with that much tragedy and that much trauma. Um, just Jesus, the fact that there's not even enough family members to carry them all yeah. was just heartbreaking. Um, and there's a couple times this movie, it, it makes its art seem effortless. Mm-hmm. I think when I first saw it, I thought that it was more artless, but I think that it more, it weaves its story very well because, uh, earlier we get the, the contrast of listening to the consolidated coal, uh, president talk about how humanitarian concerns are his number one priority. And then it cuts to that graphic telling us about the explosion in the consolidated coal mines. Yeah. Here we go from this act of violence. And this is the first time we're introduced to, um, Basil Collins. Boo. Yes. (laughs) What an unbelievable piece of shit. This guy is. Oh Oh my my God. God. Here's my thing. I'm going to bring it back to horror for us three boys here. Yes, yes. Yeah. Everything Loomis says about Michael Myers is true about Basil Collins. Mm-hmm. He's pure evil. Dead eyes. No emotion behind them for this guy at any point in this movie. He is truly terrifying to me. I know, and it's annoying because I love Basil. It's like my favorite <laughs> herb. <laughs> That's, that sounds frustrating, Sean. <laughs> this whole movie when people are like fuck basil kill me i'm like no please <laughs> take parsley what would we do without pesto <laughs> take parsley <laughs> um yeah so basil collins uh, drives that iconic like red suv and of course the main villain drives like the iconic car of this movie oh, um, man. and he is the foreman Correct of the mines. Yes, and noted strike breaker. Yes, and at one point he demands of Barbara Koppel. Uh, he demands that she show him her press card, and I love when she's like, "Well, no, you show me your ID, and I'll show you mine." <laughs> like, fuck you. What? What? What right do you have to demand identification of me on a public road? Yeah. Fuck right. you, dude. He, he smiles so mirthlessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Like the worst in slime, this guy. I, I, fuck. I hate him. Yeah, you get the impression that he's there. Like his job title of foreman is really just a title. 
and that he is there to be an enforcer for Duke Power. Well, and have either one of you read um, Red Harvest? I have not. No, nope. okay. don't know what it is. It's, uh, I mean, it's a noir, essentially, set around uh, a strike. Oh, sounds fun. Yes, it's one of the classics. Um, uh, but it made me think, because here we really start escalating, and uh, Basil, we see him, I mean, he gives Barbara Koppel shit, um, and you already don't like him, and then when the scabs are crossing the picket line and the protesters are trying to be peaceful, they're trying to stand in front of the traffic. Once his car gets through, you see him come out with a pistol in his pocket. You, you can clearly see that he's trying to hide it kind of Mm -hmm. against the back of his leg. Um, and then later you get confirmation from another camera angle that there's a pistol in his hand. Um, and he's walking up to these peaceful protesters who, as they say, they have their, their whittling sticks and pocket knives, I believe, something like yeah. that. Uh, that's what they have, and his, his men bring uh, pistols and are threatening to run them over. That's right. There's a lot of whittling going on in this movie. <laughs> oh, they got, they're standing around. Whittling. Standing around a lot. <laughs> I, lo- um, I, I did love it. It is, it is scary, though, when you see sort of this violence begetting violence. You know, the scene following this, I think you're absolutely right about the way the narrative does weave together very seamlessly uh the fact that we cut them to the meeting and they're talking about how they need they need to get violent you know that's scary that's Mm -hmm. a scary step to say that we need to be able to do this and the way that they need to work past their interpersonal conflicts of which there are several Mm -hmm. um they talk about they need to support each other and welcome each other to this struggle together because um otherwise it will fall apart and it's only through that togetherness that there is strength. Um, and also the gun that they pull out of their fucking shirts. Yes. The the woman, which, what is her name? Um, that was Lois Scott. Okay. Lois Scott, who uh, you never see who the women are actually coupled with, which men they go along with, which makes them even kind of stronger within the narrative because you see them entirely on their own making these decisions. And uh, after she gives this kind of impassioned plea of like, we're going to meet fire with fire. If they're going to step up, we're going to step up. If we see them um, uh, put their machine guns up near the gate, we're going to move our barricades down further along the freeway. Like they are guerrilla warfare tactics going to try to stop these scabs and then after all that she's standing up and pulls like a saturday night special out of her <laughs> bra and everybody laughs yeah. and i love it she's like i'm not going up there without a gun anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> which is exactly i mean i live a gunless life personally uh but i live in the suburbs yeah. <laughs> and i don't have to deal with this there's a lot of talk in this movie you can feel it's uh, they called it Bloody Harlan, which was the protests in the 30s, which were extremely violent. And so you can feel the older people afraid of a return to that because the youth don't, the youth weren't around to see it. So yeah. you have a lot of these older voices, especially later. One guy makes a plea and he says, please let there be peace tonight. I had somebody dying at my feet. I remember the blood. Mm-hmm. And he just, in the end, you know, violence is always awful. Like, violence is terrible. I mean, it's sometimes 
you can try to justify it one way or another, but man, it's there's always got to be some better solution. I feel yeah. um, not that that's always true, but like in my ideal world, if people were adult enough to figure shit out without <laughs> resorting to violence, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I was going to say, one of the, the things I've seen in interviews since then, Barbara Koppel actually takes credit for de-escalating the violence in the situation because uh, nobody wanted to be seen being violent on camera. Mm-hmm. And they never right. knew where her or her people were, and so they didn't want to, be, to get caught out, essentially. Uh, and that helped kind of quell the violence that, that could have happened at this point. Yeah, I love uh, the way she captures kind of the electricity running through the crowd, too. Um, You know, in this moment when she walks up to the guy, and this is one of the few moments where we hear Barbara, and Mm -hmm. she asks someone, are you scared? And she uh, he he responds, yeah, aren't you? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, to me, it's just such an encapsulation of the courage of these people. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's really remarkable. Here I am remarking on it. So the picket line a couple months in starts to dwindle and this is when you know things have really ramped up now and there's a meeting of like the the women clubs and two women are yelling at each other and they're like you weren't at the picket line and then one goes you make me sick and the other retorts well you make me sick you're an alcoholic will you sleep around and it's just like this hilarious little uh cat fight in middle of this movie <laughs> they patch it up though they patch it yes. up. Yeah. Uh, so I was a little confused in this next sequence um, with Basil and... Amazing a, scene. A, Good but grief. The, a potential... Was there a shot fired? He got... He was brandishing a weapon. What What happened in this next scene? Yeah. I, I believe there are shots fired, and you never quite know because the screen is dark. It seems like it was pre-dawn when mm-hmm. Barbara and her people were out there setting up as they're setting up the picket line. And there's been this also escalation of the scabs trying to get there at different times than the picket line people, apparently. Yeah. And they talk about their schedules a lot. And uh, it, what you hear is people screaming. You hear several shots fired. And you see a slowed down frame by frame a uh, shot of Basil brandishing a gun out of his truck window, out of his uh, Bronco or whatever it is that he's driving. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he passes the camera, like he gets caught in the light for maybe four or five frames. And that's all yeah. you get to see of it. It looks like Sasquatch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing the pose. <laughs> um, this, this scene though, when they send the sheriff across the way to get Basil is just impeccable you know Mm -hmm. it's so incredible it's so emotional it's what a moment of catharsis finally some kind of victory for these people um and the fact that there's even another little mini struggle where in classic police fashion in that you know it's much more difficult for poor people to get justice uh there is a seven dollar fee for the arrest uh which they then have to scrounge together to to you know, make sure that this guy who shot at them gets arrested, um, which is unbelievable in, in, in and of itself. But then the fact that they let him drive himself there instead of putting him in the car, how reluctant the sheriff is to do his job, just the just, way that they have to drag these guys to do it every inch of the way to give them even just the base amount of 
dignity and humanity. Uh, it's just such a powerful scene. Mm-hmm. Sheriff's wearing a white golf shirt. This shows how seriously he's taking the situation. Uh, he looks like he got interrupted on a lounging sat- Sunday afternoon. He's so and he annoyed. just rolls out to like, <laughs> oh, I'll see what the problem is. He doesn't want to do jack shit about anything. Yeah. He, he wants the status quo to remain. He doesn't even look at the thing until he gets there. He's like, Basil's like, what's the charge? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Uh, disturbing the peace or something. Oh, yeah. no, brandishing a deadly weapon. Like, he, he has to check it out finally. And um, you see his pose with the women. Uh, he's like, got, yep, got his arms crossed, kind of leaned back with this, I ain't buying your shit, kind of look on his face. And then when he goes over and talks to the strike breakers, he's like, he's approaching an equal. That's, Good old boys. Yeah. It's ex- and it, it is, you're right. It's disgusting. It's so upsetting to see it like happen. You couldn't script it to be any more on the nose than this. It's so you- cinematic. It's, yes. a, it's incredible. Yep. It feels, it feels like a movie. There's a mo- another moment earlier, George, that you funny enough, I was going to talk about and you posted a picture of it right before we started. There's a moment where there's cops keeping the protesters out and there's a, looks like a state highway trooper with one of those flat rim caps. And the guy looks like he's about six, five. And he's staring <laughs> a foot down, and he's just, he has that death stare on this protester standing in front of him. The guy's just standing there casually, and you can tell this cop just has the attitude of, like, go ahead, fucking do it. Make one go move. Ahead. Put one go step ahead. out of line. You know, and we saw this last summer. We saw that attitude with cops extremely prevalent still to this day of, like, go ahead, give me a reason so that I get to fuck you up. I got my foot broken, getting shoved. Yeah. Fuck. So frustrating. It's here that things really break down. I feel like um everybody we're what are we about 10 months into the uh between 10 and 13 months yeah. in into the uh the strike. Um there is a show of support from other surrounding areas. The union members of other areas come to town and have a parade in support of the local union. Um, and, but you get the counterpoint almost immediately where one of the local men complains, basically accusing them all of slacktivism. Like they showed mm-hmm. up, they did the parade. He's like, we didn't march to the coal company offices, which we could have done. Confront the boss. We didn't confront the boss. We didn't confront the guys with machine guns. Yeah. You know, they, they couldn't have shot us all. We could have gone and taken away their guns. No one wanted to escalate to that point just yet. Yeah. Um, it is it is a, an interesting dynamic between the two, and you can absolutely see both points where they're demonstrating their strength should it come to it, hoping to avoid that violence. But I can understand how this far into it, you know, there, it's got to be a tipping point at some, some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to say I love the dance the guy does during the show yeah. car driving man. So. Yes. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, one part that really like sketched me out was when that one guy's like, "Listen, I could climb up into a tree with a long rifle, and I could shoot Basil Collins from hundreds of yards away, and like end this." Basically, is kind of what he seems. But I think some people lose sight of the fact that, like you said, I don't want to take down a man; I want to take down a corporation, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Basil Collins is one villain. 
but he's not the villain. Sure. Hey, he's they can man. they can handle the rocks falling henchman. in on the on the henchmen, but you take out a company, well, they got to buy a whole new company. Right. <laughs> well said. Well said. I, I bet you're proud of that one. <laughs> so uh, here we jump to uh, the hospital emergency room one night. One of the miners, uh, Mr. Lawrence Jones, has apparently been shot in the head with a shotgun by one of the scabs, and he later passes away. 17-year-old kid with a 16-year-old wife and five-month-old baby. Mm-hmm. It's fucking tragic beyond belief. Yeah. Just absolutely... I mean, the cameras aren't there, but by all accounts, it was an unprovoked attack. On sure, him. I mean, you see the brain on the ground, you know, yeah, there, there you see the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, that's rough and seeing awful. him in the hospital too is um, you know they, they talk about uh, in a previous a protest like that a price has to be paid kind of mm-hmm. and you see the cost of this and it, it just it's heartbreaking and sure. why, why the hell would it need to come to this where now a wife and kid are widowed and orphaned yeah the the one guy says like it had to be one of us and it could have been any one of us Mm -hmm. it had to be one of us that was a line of like jesus they're like you guys almost looked at it this like it's a lottery Uh, Uh someone has to die before a change is gonna happen and that's still very true to this day again this movie is timeless yeah unfortunately uh, yeah exactly capitalism as a system is completely reactive uh, instead of proactive. And that comes at the cost of safety measures. And I think the, uh, at the meeting we see after this, we get kind of the, the twofold thing of one of the men says that they're close to getting a contract, but it was only because of the shooting. And one of the, the older uh, miners speaks up he might even have he said he was around in the the 30s uh for the strikes and he said he wished it had been him that had gotten shot because he knew it was somebody and he's like why couldn't have been someone like me who was near the end of their life we were all used up anyway and just still the feeling of solidarity that these people have that they are all fighting this same fight Mm -hmm. and they're all paying the same cost they all lost somebody from their ranks that day yeah and it's only the more tragic that it was a young man with a young wife and young baby. Yeah, I mean, when they're at the wake, I mean, I already mentioned it, but it is gut, gut-wrenching gut to see this poor older woman, his mother, who's not even that old compared to some of the other women that we see, mm-hmm. um, to see her screaming in agony over the death of her son here, um, that she was so proud that he was a union man, but that he had to give up his life to to sort of demonstrate his ideals, um, is agonizing and tragic. And when, you know, she screams, I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. I can't stand it. And she faints and she screams and it's, it's, it's the fact that the the emotion that we feel is one iota of what she's feeling and it is heartbreaking for me right and it's just it's almost too big like when you put it in a prism like Sean was saying 
if you can condense this down and look at the event itself and the price that was paid for it, was it, is it worth a man's life? Mm-hmm. Like essentially, no, this is the price that has to be paid though. Mm-hmm. It's, it is what it has come to and it is what the system has demanded of these people. Um, and Sean, when you said it was like the lottery, it made me think of Shirley Jackson's the lottery. Like, no, this is how we keep our system running is literally we sacrifice one of our own. Sure. And I think that, um, not to jump too far ahead, but I think that this does play a role in what I see as a pretty bittersweet ending. You know, it's framed pretty positively, but I can't help feeling like the coal company does win to an extent by really making it real for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, this, it goes both ways in that now the coal company looks terrible because they've killed someone, but also the threat of death is much more realistic for a lot of these uh, strikers. And I'm sure that they're more willing to settle now having seen some, one of their compatriots die on the line than they were previously. And they might be willing to settle for less. And I think we see that in the compromise that they wind up taking, sort of fucking over the older people. Mm-hmm. And to me, it does create a little bit of a bittersweetness to it. Yeah, especially towards the end. Um, they mentioned that President Miller, who they were all so excited about when he was elected, tried to negotiate and was trying to convince them to accept a deal where you are no longer allowed to locally strike. Right. And that's like, that's how this was all accomplished, was by local strikes. And so now we can't do the thing that gave us this power in the first place? What do you mean? Right, that's outrageous. And they thankfully pushed back on that at least yeah but then again it just shows you of like politics people just say whatever the fuck they want to get elected but Mm -hmm. how often does your representative truly represent you i feel like if it's half the time you're lucky yeah so the men do win the contract they have been fighting for and then three months after that uh, they they were striking for 13 months. Uh, three months after that, nationwide, there was a strike. Uh, and that's when everyone ratifies the uh, the new contract for all across the country. Uh, and I don't know what all was stipulated in that one. But we get that it was even a fairly close race. I think it's 43,000 to 34,000 um, approximately votes. Uh, yay to nay for that one. And they go on strike again. We get like these title cards that pop up of like, this is an ongoing fight basically. And this is what the the people comment on towards the end. We kind of go around to the horn again and get to hear from several other people. And they're like, oh yeah, you're a union man. You win one fight and you get up the next day to fight your next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's so rough to see that like, they won this particular battle kind of, but the war continues and it's a war of attrition. And those individuals that we see are probably going to lose over time. The collective might win, but the individuals will lose for a long time. Yeah. Myth of Sisyphus like that. You push that rock, however high up the hill you want, but it's always going to roll back on you. Well, I think that that was a really apt uh, verbiage there, Josh, because I think that um, this, to me, is a wartime movie, you know? Not to be too dramatic here, but to me, this feels like a war. Mm -hmm. Um, Call it class war, if you want. 
but it's certainly a war between Duke Power and the residents of Harlan County. And uh, I think that they're they're fighting for their lives. They really are. It's because if if they don't lay it on the strike line, then they're laying it on the coal mine. And uh, uh, <laughs> it's off the cuff, baby. <laughs> All of them today, man. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? This movie just uh, inspires me. What can I say? So, um, yeah, that'll pretty much wrap us up for this movie. Do you guys have any final thoughts or anything left that you um, that we didn't get to? I just think it's great. I mean, it's so impactful. I don't think that anything that we say about it here can really capture the emotion that this movie feels. And so I just encourage everyone to seek it out. Also, if we don't if us thinking that this movie is good isn't enough for you, it won the friggin' Oscar. So Oscar himself yes. deemed this movie <laughs> worthy of watching. It's a popcorn classic, baby. Six bags. <laughs> And yeah. Uh, yeah, I personally, I was, I really liked it, George. Thank you again. I had not seen this. I'm very happy I did. Uh, immediately after watching it, for me, I was like, right on the, like four and a half line. But talking with you guys and getting more perspective and more, more translations to everyday experiences that we have still and everything, uh, I think this bumps that up to a five out of five. Um, this is about as good a documentary as as one can be, I feel. Yeah, same here. I give it five out of five. Um, I think that is partially because of my personal response to it and partially because of the, the cultural weight that it carries. And I think that it should carry. This is the kind of movie that you should show in high school, even. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, People probably don't because they are scared of radicalizing the youth, <laughs> but uh, it is absolutely, I think, important to understand the workers' rights struggle to see something like this yourself. Yeah, uh, I agree, fellas. Uh, I will go back to the proper scale and I will say five bags of popcorn uh, <laughs> instead of six. And uh, I just think that this movie is so incredible and People are so scared of unions, and you shouldn't be. And, you know, your boss is not your friend, but your coworker could be. <laughs> yep, I like it. <laughs> um, so, this movie was all about people, workers struggling. The next movie we're going to talk about is about a man struggling with his work. <laughs> Transition. <laughs> I love it. Cats hang out next to your head. It's wild. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they're, I mean, they'll even hang out on my shoulders if I'm just, like, standing up and around. They'll just hang out like parrots. I was gonna say, you're, like, a really weird pirate. <laughs> I have broad shoulders. They like to hang out on them. <laughs> I respect it. I say, well, you're part of the family. 
I have to help carry you. All right. <laughs> Solidarity, brother. <laughs> Which leg do you want to lose below the knee? Because you got to have a wood peg. <laughs> um, I guess my... Oh, I have tattoos that I don't got to decide which one I want to lose now. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's, it's not utilitarian. You don't want to keep your strong foot. You want to keep your good tattoo leg. Yeah, that's right. I'll say left. How I many tattoos do you have, George? 13. Looking for more. Wow. Yeah, man. I Josh has so many that I don't even think they can be counted. Well, I mean, this is like one big one. Mm, what is, is that, by one. the way? I've seen it. What is on your arm? So this is actually the panel from the Criterion Collection, the comic version Ooh. of Lone Wolf and Cub. Nice. So I, and then I researched that movie recently because there's like 15 of them, right? There's uh, five. That's less than 15. But they were all with they were <laughs> all within like three years. Uh, and then I have Harakiri and Seven Samurai as well. Wow, that's fun. Um, have I told you? something dumb about myself before i mean i know i've told you dumb things about myself but have i told you this <laughs> told me one? plenty of dumb things um, yeah you have to be more specific than do you that. know do you know harry carey the cubs announcer yes do we know him i thought <laughs> is the moon made of cheese <laughs> this is wonderful i thought harry carey committed suicide because i got his name confused with harakiri <laughs> wow nice <laughs> so people would say he committed Harry Carey. Harry Carey. I was like, what? <laughs> is that what? Is that what Harry Carey's gone down for? Is his mo- yeah. method of death? It's just a really <laughs> mean remembrance of him. Yeah, like, what? Didn't this man have like a legendary broadcasting career? And this is all we uh, honor him for? He really Carradined himself. Oh, Oof. poor David Carradine. Because it is the first thing I think of. I feel so bad for him, but it's the first <laughs> thing I think of when I hear his name. I go, Kill Bill? Oh, wait, that's right. I go, Kill Bill? Yeah. More like Killed Self. Also, wow. the first sure Carradine did. movie I think of is Big Stan with Rob. Who's, who's, wow. what's the Rob, the Gigolo Rob? American Jigger. Um, Schneider. 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 That's yeah. a movie where Rob Schneider goes to prison, but before he goes to prison, David Carradine trains him how to be a badass. It was his last movie before wow. death. The get hard of a younger generation. Is that what get hard's about? I think so, isn't it? Isn't it with Will Ferrell and uh, Kevin Hart? Yeah. Yep. That's what that's about? Going to prison? Yeah. Really? That sounds yeah. kind of fun. Also, let's go to prison, kind of. Let's I mean, go to prison. Do- Boy, that was, that was a movie that ran out of steam about 30 minutes into it. <laughs> Same with two Bob Odenkirk movies I've seen that both run out of steam 30 minutes in. Brother Solomon and Let's Go to Prison. They both just lose their pace. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, so I saw Let's Go to Prison as a very young man. I found it very, very funny at the time. I suspect... <laughs> I would find it a lot less funny now. So instead of that, I will just never watch it again so that it lives in my memory as a good movie. I, thinking back on some things in that movie now, yeah, there's some stuff that I probably (laughs) wouldn't be that crazy about. Yeah. (laughs) But moving on, do you know what movie has a lot of stuff that I am crazy about? American Movie came out in 1999, directed by Chris Smith. This is one of my all-time favorite movies this might even be like a desert island 10 disc for me honestly hot dang name them i can't 
But the, the <laughs> wow, coward, like coward. Nope. Hey, all right, coward it out. Uh, okay. What's your your letterboxed top four? Right what now, are you keeping that rotation. Right now, it's uh, Master and Commander, uh, Old Boy, The Thing, and Pie are my top four Good right ones. now. Those are good ones. Okay, uh, George. For me, it is currently the Blues Brothers, uh, Paddington Two, Psycho, and Solaris, the nineteen seventies version. You're a real Paddington oh, guy, huh? Server. Paddington, boy, it's just so great. I've only it's, seen the first one, and everyone says the sequel is where it's really at. The second one is better. Look, I like the first one, but I'm gonna say it: the villain a little too villainous for me. You know, I don't want to worry about Paddington getting killed and stuffed. You know, <laughs> I'd much rather see him reform the prison system through kindness. That's what happens in the sequel? Yes. <gasps> that's that's like the plot of Big Stan. Rob Schneider is such a badass that nobody can challenge him, so he reforms the prison system and it like becomes like a social club instead wow. of this awful place. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Paddington 2 is a remake of Big Stan. <laughs> <laughs> uh also uh, we, we all saw malignant right yeah holy fuck what a movie okay <laughs> my, my my joke was gonna be my top four is just malignant four times <laughs> i bet i watched it today blew my Same. mind holy cow i'm not gonna spoil anything here but what a ride and i was with it from the beginning i've heard a lot of people say like, the first hour is boring and then it kicks in i i was along for the ride from the get-go so i was into it i like a lot about it i don't love it but i like a lot about it it makes no sense it's one of like yeah, the most that's not even really the thing that bothers me it's, I know, more the look general, of it. it's one of the most yeah. absurd plots i've yeah, heard sure. in a while man pretty um, off the rails yeah and it was it was so much james wan presentation that it actually came back around to where I was into it. Where it's like it's so much sound design and so much like camera movement and effects and shit that I was like, all right, you are sensory overloading me to the point where I'm with you. Whereas with the Insidious movies, um, they were hit and miss for me. Hey, this is Sean with an editor's note. If you haven't seen Malignant and you want to avoid spoilers, skip ahead about one minute. This is your warning. Three, two, one, let's go. Yeah. Um, here's one thing I will say, uh, and I'm going to say, if you haven't seen the movie, just jump 15 seconds starting right now. Uh, the movie reminds me a lot of Basket Case um, in, in a big, big way. And uh-huh. uh, that is both a good thing and a bad thing, because I really like that movie, and it kind of makes me just want to go watch that instead. Okay, so let's uh, jump another 15 seconds ahead, <laughs> because I needed a safe place to say this. When I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is uh, the Bart's twin episode of The Simpsons, uh, along with Raising Cain. Yes. And right. James, um, James Cotton is in that, right? No, that's... No. Uh, oh, oh my that's gosh. the Palma. That's the De Palma movie, right? Yes. There we go. Um and the uh what was the other one? You should jump oh, the dark fifteen half. seconds more. Yes. Keep <laughs> keep jumping, keep jumping. The dark half. <laughs> Man, we're screwed if they have a 30 second fast forward button though. 
um, but that that's all that's all to say I did uh, ultimately enjoy myself watching it so you should check it out people out there yeah check if, if you can turn your brain off and just accept a movie that's completely bonkers and absurd check this one out yeah you know what's another uh, movie that's completely bonkers hang and on not I didn't absurd? get to do my top four uh, come on <laughs> let me do my top four also we didn't talk about Solaris at all which everyone should watch Solaris oh all right I I've been meaning to. That's, I'm sorry, Josh. Go ahead. I'm going to watch Solaris soon because I'm going to go on like a Tarkovsky bender at some point soon. I can feel it coming. <laughs> I feel like we should do uh, Solaris and one of my top four as a double, but it'll be once again one of those big heavy ones. Uh, I feel like Solaris and Seven Samurai mm, would be yeah, a lot be of Yeah, would be a lot of fun. <laughs> I have not seen either of them. <laughs> yes, oh, I man, know. I've also got Cool Hand Luke, Fargo, and All That Jazz in my top four right, right now. All That Jazz is a good one. I don't know what that and, movie is. And my oh wife my just God, laughed Sean. at me from the next room. <laughs> I don't like jazz. You're killing me, bro. Sean! It's not about jazz. <laughs> uh. I went to New Orleans and I was like, listen, you all can't have a solo. One solo per song, okay? <laughs> Sounds like this guy doesn't like jazz. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> now segue us, John. Get, get well, on from that. that now I have to segue from that. Um, okay, wait. I got it. Do it. I'll segue us. Uh, I do like jazz, and I saw Kamasi Washington and Herbie Hancock play together, and they went together like the two guys in American movie. You're talking Fantastic. about Mark Borshert and Mike Shank, who are sure am. They're really the heart and soul of this movie. Um, so like I said, this is a documentary directed by Chris Smith. And it started out, Chris Smith um, met this guy named Mark on a college campus in Wisconsin. And Mark was trying to make a movie called Northwestern. So Chris Smith decided he was going to film him as he's making this. And it turns into a multi-year documentary project that really says a lot more th- about life than it does the process of making a movie. Ooh, I would, I would beg to differ. Wow. Already coming in hot with takes. Uh, I mean, I think that, okay, art imitates life, but the creation of art is much like life in and of itself. It's like a microcosm of what you're doing and all the pressures put on you. It's just all amplified in that point of time. Fuck you. Um, show's over. Guess what? Cause I'm going to be super annoying and I'm going to say that I think that this is a perfect choice to double feature with Harlan County because it is in fact a negative reflection of the effects of capitalism. <laughs> Wow, nice. look at us all three coming at this movie from a different perspective. This is going to be fun. I like it. So, um, the the tone is set in the opening shot of this movie. We get a shot of Mark driving on the freeway, and you hear a voiceover. And Mark is talking about fears of, this is my second chance. I can't be the same old guy. I can't be here standing around talking bullshit about making the American movie with a beer in my hand. I need to actually make something happen. And as someone who personally is also having this struggle of being in my 30s and panicking about, like, what am I doing? Am I doing enough? Um, Shouldn't I be doing more or something? Uh, I feel this a lot. Um, All I can say, Sean, is uh, some wise words uh, that 
uh, a young a young artist named Drake once said to me. Oh, he said, <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh yeah, that's right. I'm doing me. I'm doing me right now. <laughs> that, and that's all you can do, Sean. Well, I know what my third tattoo is going to be now. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't do that. I I don't like Drake. <laughs> uh, the this movie. Uh, as I've watched it over the last like 15 years or so just hits closer and closer for me because I initially watched it with a group of people setting out to make a short film. And then I didn't revisit it until about five years later when I was cinematographer on my first feature film. And so many quotes from this and this, Sean, if you're going to edit this one, and you want to start including clips, this would be the... Oh, this the, is a super clippable movie. Yes, the exact time to do it, because so many lines from this have gotten into my filmmaking repertoire. It is exactly like, you know, you use the things of like, do you see the crosses? I can't wait to call yes. out our favorite lines. Um, Josh, thank you for mentioning history with this movie. Uh, I've, I've watched Angry Video Game Nerd since I was, like, 19 now. I can't believe that guy's still going on YouTube. I heard he's, he's like one of the, the angriest gamer you've ever heard. He sure is. <laughs> <laughs> he's still going. I still like his stuff, not as nearly as much as I used to. But he has a deep affinity for this movie. And so he talked about it and shared it on a... Or he shared, like, his favorite moments from this on his channel or something. And that led to me watching it as... Probably, I don't know, 13 years ago when I was 21, 22 years old was the first time. And Josh, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, as I've gotten older, my perspective has changed and what I think is important has changed. And how I receive movies, especially this movie, has changed. And it's it's only changed for the better, where it now hits me on a deeper level. And for me, this movie's really just about we'll get into it as we go but it's just about like the existential struggle of life in a lot of ways and of acceptance of what your life is and who you are and it's there's a lot of profound stuff and then it's just the the lighthearted comedy the quotes the amount of times that chris smith captures lightning in a bottle again and again and again where like a most documentaries, you would get maybe, like, four of these moments. And in this movie, it's, like, every four minutes, something <laughs> so iconic, so hilarious, so just real and true happens. Um, it, it blows me away every time. I love it so much. It fills my heart with both sadness and happiness at the same time, in a way that not many things can find that melancholy that this does. And I think that... Um as I was doing a little bit of research for this, I found out one director voted for this for his uh, BFI director's list. Hmm. And that person was Jay Duplass, which seems to me exactly perfectly like, of course he is the guy who voted for this movie to be on his list, (laughs) to be high up on his list of documentaries. I think it was his number one or number two documentary uh, on the list. And you, if you know anything about the Duplass brothers and the scrappy way that they started, um, 
if you have ever seen their behind the scenes shots from their first films and you've got like a guy with a boom pole, that's a, that is a, um, uh, a broom with a microphone taped to the end, duct taped to the end, holding it just inside of a car, trying to get audio. You, you can see like the trajectory that Mark Borchardt could have had from like, and that he was expecting to have of what the Duplass brothers have gone on to do. Absolutely. That's a good point. Um, as we go along, we'll talk about Mark and his actual movie making talent, because I do think there's some there buried inside of him. Um, so Mark, we first see him writing uh, a script for a live radio show. I don't even it know. It was if my this first is... time seeing it. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> damn it. That's your first time seeing it. That's good. Uh, great. I'm glad to hear that. So, uh, Mark is recording. <laughs> so he's, they're doing this live radio show, and you see Mark typing away at his keyboard. And this is where you get a feel for how intense this guy is. Like, everything that he's doing seems to be at, like, a 9 out of 10 on intensity. And he's talking, he's typing, and he's manic, and he's talking about, I got people running around, I got people putting up scarecrows out front, it's for a radio show. He's like, well, I don't know if it's going to make a difference, but it just helps to keep the troops happy, you know? I want to give everyone destinies. Everything with this guy is so hyperbolic, so gigantic when he speaks... It's quite incredible to listen to him because he could be a hell of a salesman, I think. If he had chosen mm-hmm. that lifeline, that path, I think this guy could sell anything. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, I have a hard time pinning down my emotions about this guy, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I think that he... Uh, I certainly admire his creative drive, and I think that he's a funny guy, and... I think that he is completely genuine, which does a lot to endear him to me. But I also think that he is a bit of a huckster. Uh, You know, he is doing it for something he believes in. But, you know, you see his, you can kind of put together some of the background pieces about like his brother talking about him being aggressive and the relationship with his ex-wife. And you can kind of see how some of the things that make him uh, interesting and passionate about filmmaking might not be the best relationships in, in, or might not be the best qualities for interpersonal relationships uh, beyond his LSD-baked best bud. Mark (laughs) uh, is the kind of drunk that I never want to be around. He seems like a miserable drunk. Uh, Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh he's, yeah! That scene where he's, he's so intense at the dude, Super Bowl, and, he, uh, and also slightly nonsensical, where he's mm-hmm. just like he gets angry at nothing and gets yeah. like fired up and starts yelling. And I've been around those kinds of drunks, and it's like I don't know what's going to happen, especially if we're in public with you. Like, yeah. some shit is going to go down or going to go bad, and you need to not drink if you can't handle yourself. And Mark yeah. clearly has. Uh, from my armchair diagnosis of an edited documentary, he seems to have some <laughs> issues with drinking. Yeah, I would uh, certainly agree with that. And I think that, um, you know, it's hard to be mad at him based on what we see in the film because he is so earnest. Um, but uh, I just think that outside of the movie magic, I could see him 
being a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. Um, and again, I think this is why I come back to this movie and love it so much, is that it's not clean cut, clear cut. There's not an easy answer to this. People often see it online. It's like, uh, is this a comedy? Is this a tragedy? <laughs> what is this? And it's, it's kind of all of the above, honestly. It's, um, I did find an interesting article. I believe it was um, this one by, uh, on the BFI uh, website by Robert Green that talks about this movie through the lens of, of class struggle and Mark as performing uh, the role of his class in the movie uh, and being kind of a exaggerated version of himself and that the documentary itself is combined by Mark, uh, Mike and Chris, Mm -hmm. they came up with it kind of together to act it out in this way to look at somebody who was downtrodden. Um, having seen Mark and Mike, um, they used to do stuff on, I think IFC channel. They would do some of the bumpers, um, especially around Halloween and uh, other interviews that Mark has done. I don't know if I buy the thesis that he is playing an exaggerated version of himself necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't think that at all. I, I, yeah. I've never gotten a performance feel from him. I feel like maybe they said that to cover his ass a bit. and He would be a very good actor if that's the that case. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I just, yeah, Mark is super likable, but he's also an asshole and he's selfish, but he has a dream. So it's like you can commend him for how he sticks to it, but at the same time, wonder how he could possibly think he has the talent to actually pull this off. Like, yeah. There's so many different ways to approach this, and I love the the community around this movie that gets interviewed because you get actors who are into it. Like that one guy, Tom Schurling, who gets his head shoved through the cover yes mm-hmm. he seems like a really good dude and he's like listen yeah. i know this is important to him so i try to give him a set deadline but i'll work around it because i know how much he cares or we see another guy that says you know when you when i talked to mark i could tell like this was his life's purpose and so yeah. I, I can give up 10 weekends to to let him have that to achieve that i mean it was cute that he thought it would be 10 weekends <laughs> um, but still there, there are so many great characters and oh mike shank i love mike shank so so much he's such a sweetheart and i just want to give him a, a big hug and but again there's that bittersweet feeling where like i watch this guy and i just feel so bad for him oh he, he fried his brain for he, sure well he fried yes. his brain he's got the he's got a gambling addiction he said that he he uh has replaced his alcohol and drug problem with which you know it's certainly i think an improvement uh, a step up and uh because it's less directly damaging to his health at the very least but even in those moments where he has these minor victories like winning 50 bucks on the scratch off the fa- i mean i'm this is a big moment this was something that i had heard prior to even seeing the movie but so Mark, did you, yeah, I won two hundred dollars today. Yeah. Wow. So you do with that two hundred bucks? Oh no, I gave a hundred to my dad, 
and I got 65 at home in my room and I got 20 in my wallet. So if you can think of something we can spend 20 bucks on, maybe we can what spend What we can it. spend 20 bucks on? <laughs> About four pitchers at Jim Mitchell's. Uh, I don't want to buy no beer. I don't either, man, but if you want to buy it, I'll drink it. When he's like, oh, I don't want to tell them I won this money yes. because they will ask to borrow it. And then when you see it in action, when he's like, I got 20 bucks in my wallet, if you can think of something that we can spend 20 bucks on. And he's like, oh, you could buy me beer. Is you such, don't drink anymore. Buy me beer. That's such a moment where it's like, Mark, you fucking selfish asshole. Like, this is your friend who's clearly an addict. Mm-hmm. was brain dead literally at one point like you and you're still like trying to coax him into coming back to the basement and drinking vodka with you because yeah it's like you know that's horrible you, way but it's like when people anchor each other one person yeah. starts to clean their life up and the other person especially i imagine with addicts uh if one person gets clean and the other doesn't that's a huge problem in that friendship or that relationship yeah, and you contrast this with the moments later on where he's sitting there, he's being interviewed, he's doing a talking head, and he's like, oh, yeah, like, I do this because this is what my friend Mark wants to do. Like, I'm in these movies because I want to support my friend Mark, mm-hmm. and what other reason would I need to be in the movie? My, yeah, Mike's last words are just like, I value his friendships. That's what he does, so that's what I do. I make movies with him. It's like, God damn it, we all need a Mike Shank in our corner, you know? And the lack of dignity that he's afforded by his friend, I think, is uh, shocking to me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Mark doesn't... I don't think Mark ever changed how he treated Mike. Uh, after Mike went through massive changes, you know? Right. Um, um, but I also, before I rag on uh, Mark too much here, I don't want to give the impression that I find this guy completely detestable or anything. Certainly, I think that uh, he is putting his heart and soul into this project. And I think that part of the uh, the the outward negativity that we see coming from him is because of the stresses that are being placed upon him by, here it comes, getting to my thesis, capitalist (laughs) structures. (laughs) You know, the moments where we see reality intruding, uh, the bills stacking up, him having to borrow gas money, living on credit cards, being so psyched because a new credit card came in the mail. Yeah, let's just talk about that intro scene setting the tone, which is we're going to introduce real fucking life problems, and then we're going to have a laugh out loud moment. $81, amount delinquent, $81.11. Oh man, resulting in a lien on any real and personal property that you own within 10 days of this notice, September 6th and we're October 19th. Luckily it's just $81. What are they gonna take, you know, like my Night of the Living Dead book? Oh my God, legal actions. Unbelievable. Man, who wants to be faced with this crap? Your AT&T Universal card has arrived? Oh, God. Kick fucking ass. I got a MasterCard. I don't believe it, man. Life is kind of cool sometimes. 
oh, kick fucking ass. I got a MasterCard. <laughs> Life is pretty cool sometimes. And immediately I'm just like, oh, remember that like 2008 complete economic collapse that we had? Yeah. <laughs> there, um, there you see it. And later on in the movie, he's like, I owe MasterCard $500 when he's talking about all his debts. I was like, oh, I remember right. when you were excited about that card. Yeah. Um, and to me, part of what makes this movie so interesting is when you view Mark less as an individual, which he is certainly a fascinating one, and more as sort of a embodiment of the American dream, I think that this mo- that's where this movie really works for me. Because he manages to maintain an indomitable faith in himself, despite being faced by a situation that could make anybody crawl into the corner to just die of despair. You know, this crushing debt, as he sits there and lists off uh, uh, bill after bill after bill, brought on by a system that is marked by the exact type of individualism that he himself demonstrates. The thinking only about himself is exactly the hallmark of these institutions. Um, He really kind of represents America to me. And, you know, the way that he doesn't even appreciate them like he should, but the support system that he has in his family and friends is, is the only real thing that Mark has keeping his dreams alive. And to me, it really is, is an interesting look at sort of pulling people up together instead of trying to push people down to lift yourself up. It's kind of an indictment of what Mark is doing, I think. So it's interesting to me because uh, I absolutely agree with your take, George, as far as um, what he represents and uh, symbolically what this movie can mean for the entire underclass who, I mean, it's the fight club premise, right? Like we were raised, told we were going to be rock stars and then you have to go work in a factory. Yeah. Or in a cubicle. It's exactly that same kind of, and this is a guy who refuses to conform and for some reason uh, has been allowed to live his life up to, up until his early thirties when this is happening, um, kind of skating by on his jobs at the graveyard and uh, delivering papers and has, you know, which he has for weeks at a time. You know, he says, I'm here for a few weekends and then I'm out. Yes. Uh, which is I think why that works that he uh, he has that big speech about how he's not going to be there very long. And then they show uh, like eight months later, he's still <laughs> dragging across the barricades at the cemetery. Yeah. You see um, the seasons change as it goes from winter to Memorial yes. Day. And yeah, he's there for almost the entire sure. movie. He even says like, oh, yeah, the last couple weeks, I actually locked a guy in here. <laughs> like, yes, the amount of time that he gave himself to work there is the, he's been messing up for. <laughs> yep. Uh, but the for me, this movie hits. It is very personal, not just because of the 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 parallels that come with making all art and making film specifically, but um it almost feels like a younger man's version of um, death of a salesman Mm -hmm. to me, where you have this guy who you, he is having his own existential crisis at different points throughout the movie. But I myself often worry that I am him. Mm. 
I worry that by chasing my dreams, I am ruining my family, Mm -hmm. that by going after what I want, I'm being selfish and short-sighted and not being there for other people in the way that I could be. And Well, Josh, maybe you should have thought about that before you knowingly sold faulty airplane parts. (laughs) Nice. Death of a salesman joke. Death of a salesman re- reference. Uh, I've never read it. That's why I didn't laugh. Wow. Oh, I got to, I got to see that in Stratford um, at the at their Shakespeare festival, and I, I was in high school, and a bunch of high schoolers were crying. Wow. <laughs> it's I just a very well done version. Saw John Lithgow play the titular salesman, and uh, he was very mm. good. He was very good in it. Nice. Yeah. So. I think that there's this movie has occurred to me as different things throughout my different times of viewing it and living with it. And like I said, quoting it and last year we watched it at my, um, uh, one of our marathons I do with my buddies, Andrew, who's going to be on in a couple of weeks. Um, Eli is normally the guy who, who produces our marathons for us. He puts the, the slate together. He finds a bunch of commercials to put in the middle. Um, he gives us like station breaks and, uh, old fashioned, um, uh, theater introductions to everything, uh, which is great. But I also just made a movie with these guys. A movie where Eli gets thrown through a wall at one point. And when it gets to the scene in here where Mark smacks Tom. Tom's head into the door repeatedly, I was like, guys, this is all I could think of when we were <laughs> when we were shooting is that we're going to break Eli's nose <laughs> or something, throwing him through a wall. Uh, there's uh, so. Yeah, this movie works doubly for me as a movie fan, just to see the production side of a movie, especially when I, when I first saw this movie, I didn't quite understand the concept of ADR. And there's mm-hmm. tons of ADR featured in this movie. And ADR, it, it seems to be like a Hollywood secret, where like they never show it in behind-the-scenes features or anything. You, you barely even know that ADR and Foley artists exist. It's like they're trying to hide the fact that they... They do that work. Uh, right. So, um, so getting into it a little bit. So Mark is going to um, produce a movie called Northwestern. The plot of Northwestern seems eerily similar to his real life. The protagonist is an alcoholic whose only friend gets sober and gets into the group thing, AA. And then the group tries to then change the protagonist and the protagonist ends up snapping and killing some people or something. I don't know, man. I don't see the parallels. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Mike sees them. I don't think he can. I, uh, poor Mike. Poor, poor Mike. Um, so, well, uh, Mark, you, you see why people follow him initially, especially when he's in this production meeting. You can see him, like, emulating how he thinks directors behave and what he thinks a production meeting is. So he's holding his hands in front of him with his two L thumbs and his palms to make the frame. And he's talking about dilapidated duplexes and these shots that go in and out and graveyards and everything. And the sales pitch that he gives is excellent. The people don't know that it's not quite going to happen this way, but man, he makes it sound good. 
So after the production meeting, we get a casting scene. This is um, so awkward. Where, oh my God, this is so awkward. Yes. <laughs> we get the same lines read by different people auditioning as you do in these scenes. And it's like the standard kind of montage. And then it's broken uh, by Mark standing outside. He's, I think he's smoking or something. They're making a mockery out of my words, man. This whole thing is turning into a theatrical mockery. Do you understand that, Mike? No. <laughs> well, you will. I'm going to go in there flying, man, and read this fucker like it's supposed to be read, because I've had it. You, you stupid you fucking bitch! This is 186 fucking minutes phone call at goddamn prime time! I paid the fucking bill! <laughs> He's just screaming at the poor woman, his scene partner. <laughs> just like... Top of his voice, throat shredding, <laughs> screaming at her. That's acting, it's, you know? Acting is screaming. Yeah. If you're not loud, you're not acting. Yeah, uh, they, I, I had heard acting was reacting. It's actually acting is screaming. Josh, when you said <laughs> casting, I thought you were going to mention the awkward casting director or the ca- uh, that we get. Oh, okay. Or casting agent, whatever. I don't know what you call them. Um, agent, yeah. When that guy's calling people on the phone to try oh, to pitch God, them the yes. movie, and he's like, Hi, I'm from a, a movie. It's called <laughs> Northwestern. Northwestern. Are Are you interested? <laughs> do, do you want to hear about the movie? <laughs> She's like, yeah, I want to hear about it. <laughs> um. So after this, we see Mark. He's parked himself at an airport. He's riding in his car at the airport because he says when he's at home, he can always make a pizza or something to distract himself. And so this is the only place where he gets really gets any work done. And he starts to read his script. And for me, this is where the red flags really start to pop up of like, uh-oh, this guy's not a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. one, one of the lines that, he's, that he reads is just, a character says something and a character goes, oh, you know, it's just one of those things. And it's like, that's such shit writing. But then later in the movie... Mark says that line organically to somebody else where he's like, they're producing. And he's like, oh, we don't have the, well, fuck it. It's just one of those things. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes. my, so that's just how this guy talks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I get the idea that all of his characters talk just like him, which is this amazing. His, uh, his vernacular is so singular to him. Yeah. It is like identifiable as if Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino wrote this guy that he is so identifiable by how he speaks, especially in contrast with everyone around him. And the, the mixture of the lowest brow with things like theatrical mockery Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the mispronunciation of words as in, um, (laughs) I need you to be minutesing. Can you be more minutesing? (laughs) (laughs) That's I love that. It's a combination of the low brow with really big fancy words yes um at this point we meet uncle bill and my god uncle bill when like when i say i connect with this movie i think more and more uh, the the amount of like empathy and different emotions that uncle bill puts me through Mm -hmm. is expands every time i see this movie and so like the 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 mark and mike stuff is interesting for their relationship and the movie side but Uncle Bill, this is where, when I was talking before about this movie says a lot just about life, Uncle Bill says a lot about the human experience, and it's, it's, I struggle with it, because again, it's this melancholy where I feel so incredibly sad for him, yet at the same time, 
he's funny and yeah. you know he seems to be enjoying hanging out with his nephew and i i, I don't know he's it's, he's such a complex character it is interesting. Uh, I will say, first and foremost, I cannot condone the thought of a Sprite with peppermint schnapps. I want to try it. I was like, I need to drink a... Next time I watch this movie, Sprite and peppermint schnapps for Uncle Bill. <laughs> Look, I respect it. Pour one out for Uncle Bill. Do you know? But, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. But no, yeah, I just think that he is an interesting guy, you know? Uh, we see him be like... The whole time that he's trying to get his line down... He's like, I don't want to be here. I'm grumbling the whole time. But he's also there for 30 takes. But then, you know, he's also like, this whole thing is shit. I'm fucking done. I'm out of here. So um, It's very funny. And then, it, not to jump too far ahead, but, you know, at, at the very end when he's talking about their dreams, like, mm-hmm. goodness gracious. I, I won't spoil exactly what they say, so we can leave it for a little punch at the end. Uh, but. Uh, so Mark is pitching this movie to Bill. Tells Bill that you're going to make a profit because Bill has $280,000, <laughs> as he says. Uh, yeah. At least he thinks. And uh, so Mark is trying to get money. And as Mark's dad says, it's almost impossible to get money out of Bill's hands, except Mark can do it. Something yeah. about Mark's relationship with Uncle Bill is special. And you do see it throughout the course of this movie. Um, I love when Mark, in order to try to pitch this movie to get money... He shows Uncle Bill one of the actor's portfolios as an mm-hmm. actress, and mm-hmm. he looks at her photo and goes, oh my gosh. Well, it looks like she's in lingerie. It looks like he throws yes. him like a sexy photo to get him to yep. be like, oh, aren't you want to be around her, Uncle Bill? Mm-hmm. At the next production meeting, um, we get the, the again, production director, What what what's... DP? No, he's not the DP. Who's the guy that the Mark is arguing with? Because somebody says we have a primeval filmmaker in Mark, and we have a textbook filmmaker oh. in this other guy. And Josh, I want to get your take kind of on the clash of those two ideas of the guerrilla filmmakers versus the collegiate educated rule followers and, and just that in general. Mm-hmm. So on uh, Lashman, the, the first movie that I worked on the first feature that I worked on, it was very much, um, we had a two man, two man crew for the most part. It was Cameron McCasland as the writer and director. And I was the cameraman and we both set up lights. We both, uh, pushed an ambulance out of a swamp, essentially. Um, everything. We had some locals from Hopkinsville, Kentucky who would come out and help and have gone on to make their own movies, which is uh, awesome to me that it was kind of their first time was with us and they've gone on to like make a career out of doing it. Um, but for one day we had another friend come in who had gone to film school and both Cameron and I came from reading Steven Soderbergh's book and Robert Rodriguez's book. Like that's where we were like, okay, we're going to watch a bunch of extras on DVDs and read about how these guys actually did it. Um, And nowhere in there is there a script supervisor in either one of those books. They don't fucking talk about a script supervisor. Uh, And Eric comes on and bless his heart. He had these sheets that were beautiful looking, but I had no idea what to do with them where you were supposed to log all your shots and log all of your footage, which would have come in handy when I spent two years editing the movie. (laughs) 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 And so Absolutely. 
the mess that you see them in later where everyone is hunting around for two frames of film to fill out a, a scene. I'm like, I've been there and it is because of that, that primal uh, filmmaker. If he had someone who had the reins on him a little bit and could have helped him and could have logged all of these shots and logged all of this footage, um, he'd be in a different place. And I think if he had been able to give himself over to the system actually of making movies, just through his sheer dogged determination, he could have risen up the ranks. I've seen people who have less visual panache and skill than this man does make something of themselves in the field. As we'll see later, he seems like he has a pretty good eye for cinematography. Yes. I don't know editing or any writing especially, no, but... The guy knows what looks good, I think. We mm-hmm. see some really impressive shots later. Uh, Josh, I'll, I'll bring it up now. Might as well as good a time as ever. Um, I shot... Um, there was a band, they're still around, called Cattle Decapitation, and I spent almost five weeks filming them in studio about ten years ago. They, they recorded an album called The Monolith of Inhumanity, and I lived mm-hmm. near where they were recording in Colorado at the time. And had just dropped out of college and was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I thought something along the lines of documentary maybe was something I wanted to get into. And so I hung out with this band. And it was like really exciting the first couple days. And I, I had all my mini DV tapes. And I was good about like labeling each one. I didn't quite keep. I, I think I did mark some timecode notes for certain things that I thought were editable. So I was really trying hard. But after a while, my God, the boredom of standing around watching musicians play the same eight seconds of music over and over and over again, or setting up drums to get the right tone and just like, and then not knowing as a documentarian, when should I be filming? Am I wasting film right now shooting this? Or is this something where there's potential for sparks to fly here? And um, on that note, the fact that Chris Smith is shooting on actual film, is he not, Josh, for this movie? Yes. The fact totally that he's 16. burning actual film means that he's burning money every single shot. So the, the fact that he was able to shoot this much to capture this many moments blows my mind. Mm-hmm. I think it is absolutely uh, the this type of documentary, um, and I do, I think of this... And there's a couple Errol Morris ones from early on where they're this. I, I told George I was having a hard time uh, breaking this movie down into beats because it is such a hangout movie. And that's what you do. You hang out with these characters for so long. You do get talking heads sitting down classic interview style once in a while. But a lot of the magic comes from these scenes where they're just interacting with each other. And you just have to be rolling all the time for mm. that. And that to to capture those kinds of things. And even on projects in the past, when I used mini DV tape, like Lashman, we had, I believe, 42 tapes by the time we were done, Um, which is an insane amount. It's 42 hours of footage. Um, Now everything can go on a little SD card. Uh, Even at 4K, I can capture a whole day on two or three cards uh, and immediately log it when I'm putting it into the computer. Just the idea of every time I'm pressing this button, it's costing me money to find out if it's good later <laughs> is absolutely nuts to me. And I don't know how you would do that. 
I don't. Yeah. How did how did he decide when to push record? Hanging out with. Uh, it looked like it looked like he was doing the old uh, Jerry Lewis viewfinder thing. Where he, like, <laughs> just strapped another camera on top of it to have them look through underneath. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, during this production meeting, Mark is really kind of freaking out because he's like, there's never been a movie where you have to use your imagination. And then the filmmaker said, sorry, this this wasn't filmed or we couldn't do it or whatever. There actually has it's... been two of those. Most recently, Tammy and the T-Rex did it, but that's like a farcical movie. The (laughs) Devil Inside is a horror movie that came out like 10 years ago in theater, and literally, the ending of the movie says, to see what happens, go to www.blahblahblah, and that's the end of the movie. There's not an ending. It's like they they ran out of budget, and so they just send you to their website to finish the movie. People lost their What's on the website? I don't remember. I think it might have been like short little 45 second things that maybe they were able to film after i don't remember i just remember that release being like one of the most hated movies ever because of that ending (laughs) um it's funny uh during that production meeting when they're talking about how they basically got nothing done yet and they don't have really anything ready for production and he's like talking about possibly having a switch over to the other one he's just staring into the camera with dead eyes and you're you i think that that's a moment where i actually do really connect with him where you really see how much this means to him that the idea of having to even just have another delay to this project is killing him yeah so mark realizes that the script is nowhere ready his visuals are nowhere near ready but he's had this short film called coven uh, the name of the film is Coven. It's pronounced Coven, man. What else could it be pronounced? Uh, Coven. Uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, 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 no. Coven. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. no. Coven sounds like oven, man, and that's just—it doesn't work. Coven. 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 Uh, unless you want to put an umlaut or something over the O. A what? <laughs> you mean those? Oh, hold on a second. Those two dots. Yes. Possible. He's been filming, we find out, for years. And so, so he needs... Sean. What? There's two you can't things. just blow past Coven. Two things we have to touch on here. It's one of them Coven. is... One of them is... Yeah, it's called Coven, all right. The, uh, the fact that Mark's, Mark's phrase is, no one has ever paid admission to see an excuse. Wow. That's Which is... So good! That's so what fucking I love. good! And... That exact phrase out of the mouth of my dear friend Cameron McCaslin has gotten me like on the hood of a car driving down the street before because he's like, hey, do you want the shot or not? No Mm. one's ever paid admission for an excuse. And I'm like, all right, shit. Right. Time to get up there and do it. He's right. (laughs) Josh, we just Uh, watched a movie about unsafe work conditions. And now you're telling us this. (laughs) Yeah, but he's in a union. (laughs) There's some absolute behind the scenes footage that should never be seen. (laughs) But uh yeah, we have to talk about Coven, guys. Oh man, Coven, Coven. No, it's just it's rhymes a no. with oven. No, it, it's it a witch's Coven. It's a wait. Coven of witches. Josh, are you making a we need to talk about Kevin joke? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? everyone oh, that's said fantastic. that movie's so disturbing. About I, it, I couldn't take it seriously. It, no, it was far too silly for me. I don't know what people were. Tilda, talking. you're better than that. I don't know. That movie was so weird. 
Uh, I agree. Uh, yes, but the idea of it being named Coven, and then the little girl being like, "It's Coven." Yeah. So this <laughs> and is he's the- like, "No, you're a fucking idiot, kid. Get out of here." After this, we later on we'll get a scene with our super fancy actor. I don't remember his name right now, but he's the one who I'm not sure if he's British or if he just has real actory voice that he puts mm. on, and he's actually just another American. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he goes well it's coven clearly and mark and he tells mark you can put an umlaut over it and mark goes oh what <laughs> oh you mean those two you, dots you mean those two dots yeah <laughs> oh, um, it is very God, funny though so and funny. he's right it does sound better for the movie so, yes it does yes uh later on mark and mike are out scouting locations and mike this is another iconic point Mark talks about what happened last night, and he says, Last night, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, trying to get the Hotel Tangiers. Hotel Tangiers. Colvin, man, we gotta get this sucker done, though, seriously. Last night, man, I was so drunk, I was calling Morocco, man, calling, trying to get the Hotel Hilton at Tangiers in Casablanca, man. That's, I mean, that's, that's pathetic, man. Is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down peppermint schnapps and try to call Morocco at 2 in the morning? That's senseless, but that's what happens, man. What is going on oh. with this guy's life? Try and get to the Hotel Tangiers, man. He just said. <laughs> he goes, that was pathetic, though, man. <laughs> is that what you want to do with your life? Suck down permanent schnapps and try to call Morocco at two in the morning? That's senseless. <laughs> We've got every F-stop known to man in this film. Oh my god, there's so many good lines from this. We see some production footage now as they drag Mark through the water of a swamp, it seems, and they smash his car. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark shows uh, an economic breakdown of what he needs to sell, how many units he needs to move, and it's written on a whiteboard. And again, this is another one of those moments where I'm like, Mark is funny until he's fucking intense and it's not funny anymore. And this mm-hmm. part where he's just talking, he's like, I can't sell 50 units, I can't sell this, I have to sell three, and he wipes off the whiteboard super violently, he's like, I have to sell three fucking thousand of the, it's just like, dude, whoa. And it's so impulsive, whoa. too, that he literally, in the next moment, is like, I regret wiping that off. <laughs> like, yes. Yes, it's, and this, it scares me, that kind of behavior in the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this, we go with Uncle Bill to the bank. Uncle Bill is... Very concerned that this whole Northwestern Productions thing is somehow a scam and Uncle Bill's getting bilked out of his money. I also use that phrase. Uh, it does feel like bilking. Yes. They, <laughs> they're with Mark's father after this. They're driving home. Mark's dad says, Bill, you have to have faith. Uncle Bill responds, faith in nothing. Mm. Mark asks him, in your casket, what will you be thinking that last moment? I really hope they didn't put Bill in his casket before he was dead. Yeah. That's a great point. (laughs) My next part, a guy calls Mark. Mark's trying to get a crew together to film a scene. And Mark goes, I live two blocks from you. (laughs) And then then the guy clearly asks for directions. So Mark goes, do you have a pen? (laughs) Can you go get a pen? Get a pen. (laughs) Um, Mark gets his mother to act as the camera person the next day. Uh, It's a tragic scene. I feel terrible for everyone involved here. You know, he's yelling at her. I feel terrible for him that he clearly doesn't have the resources to execute his vision. 
and you know the way that that results in him lashing out at his mother who is just trying to help uh it is a tragic scene it is very funny also mm-hmm. you know it is uh if you ain't laughing you're crying kind of thing yes but he is uh you know as he's dipping out of frame and then she's like oh i just now understand what this frame is for <laughs> oh god it's so, she, rough. so yeah she she just now understands what the the viewfinder is but then when she she hits cut on the camera he goes did you just cut okay <laughs> cut and he says it into the microphone and then 30 seconds later, she cuts the camera again. And just the exasperation of, like, you can see him trying to be patient with his mom. And so he just mm. broke. He just cut. <laughs> um, I love the scene where they're all in the black robes. And Mark goes, hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. And Mike goes, does everyone have brown gloves? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Mark says he's so, been in the woods five times shooting this same scene. Yeah, I was going to say, he dragged everyone out to these snowy woods five times. And this is where you get the, uh, I need you to be menacing. Can you be more menacing? <laughs> but everybody is wearing hoods. Like, not just hoods, but like uh, balaclavas, like over their faces. So These could be mannequins. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he's asking them to be more menacing. And it's like, how? They're all wearing robes and stuff on their face. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want them to emote with? He takes the documentary crew for a drive around one of the nice neighborhoods in the area. Um, and he tells them how he's going to live in a house like they're looking at someday. And he's like, not like this one. It's going to be like more flat and not as ostentatious. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I just love his. He really has these these big dreams still that he's going to have that nice house through his filmmaking venture around this time. He's also driving them around delivering newspapers. And this is where he talks about how he's half Satanist, half Christian. You know, it feels like in a Christian, what Jesus would be saying, it's, it's totally unchristian man to try to get ahead because everyone's on an equal level playing field an equal par. But you know what? I'm not a Christian. I'm half and half man. Half's, uh, with the Satanist idea and half the Christian idea. Satanist, which is the pursuit of human endeavors, and Christianity, which is the pursuit of um, higher levels, you know? Oh, God, I love this. I loved him trying to explain that, like, he was worried about feeling guilty with self-success part of Christianity. So then that's when he adapted the half-Satanism, half-Christian philosophy <laughs> to enable him to not feel guilty about having his own success. And he's, it is. He's, look, talk about a man carving his own path. Right. His girlfriend, uh, he meets a location scout who then becomes his girlfriend. Uh, he gives Bill storyboards, and Bill has, Bill has the storyboards underneath his dirty shoes. Oh man, the storyboards are so funny. The little drawings on them, uh-huh. so cute. Bill fucks with Mark a lot. Like you, I, I feel like you can see a wry smile crack on Bill's face sometimes as he just knows he's fucking with his nephew. Yeah. Oh, even the little like lines that he delivers sometimes, where you can see him like begging someone to say something. Where he's like, "Nice day if it doesn't rain." Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, that's how it works, Bill. <laughs> Uh, this next scene, this is where we get to the cabinet crush. We have a barbecue outside, and this scene is full of characters. So we have fancy actor dude with the fake British accent. We have 
a lady who shows up in short shorts and a tank top who Mark's best friend, Ken Keen, who seems like a similarly greasy dude, is hitting on her. We then have the other dude who seems like a good guy with an open black shirt wearing a key around his neck as a necklace. I don't know what that's going on. Hmm. Uh, Bill's in a Hawaiian shirt. George, I thought you'd appreciate Bill's look in the scene with the flat cap. Sure did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's killing it. And Josh, the, uh... this is where we get to the covered scene. Yes, uh, I like the fact that you you get introduced to everyone kind of arriving and all the busyness getting ready for the shoot. Mm-hmm. And then you get Mark hiding in the basement at 11 a.m. drinking a beer <laughs> in the middle of the day when he is supposed to be like controlling everything. Yeah, he says it's, it's 11 a.m. We have to get 52 shots done <laughs> by 6 p.m. Yes. 52 shots in seven hours is what this guy thinks he's going to do. Uh huh. Starting the day by drinking. And the uh, Ken, acting as the production designer for the day, uh, has scored the back of this cupboard door to make it easy to break when Mark slams Tom's head into it. Easy in big time air quotes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) George, what did you think as a first time viewer watching this scene? Oh my God, I cackled. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I just laughed and laughed and laughed. It was so funny. I felt so bad for this guy. He's so game. He uh-huh. gets his head smashed in like five times. This is the second time they filmed this. Oh, my God. It's Yeah, and he's like, oh, I was hoping that this would be one of the ones where they got it right on the first time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you can see him start to... He takes the first two hits head directly, and then after that you see him start to throw his forearm up to kind of brace himself as he keeps taking yeah. hit after hit. And who could blame him? Mark Oh no kidding. Mark to check his to check the scoring, because Mark's crazy aggro sometimes, his heckles are bleeding, God knows why, and he starts punching the cover to test it. He goes, Oh yeah. dude, I'm so sorry I tried to put your head through this. <laughs> Yeah, he punched it as hard as he can, like, three times before being like, oh, maybe this isn't appropriate to throw somebody through. So they they get it back out to Ken, who scores it more, but they use the same board, the same door. So you just see this concave cabinet-covered door that they're not going to smash Tom's head through. It's, uh... You work with what you got, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Somewhere in here, it breaks to his kids, which I think are sitting like around the side of the house. Um, I think it's his kids and like some neighbor kid or something is in one of the shots. It's weird. Um, but his his kids reveal the fact that the last movie Mark took them to was Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> and the kids, the oldest one has got to be six. It's She goes, the, the horror, the horror. The horror. <laughs> so funny. So Apoc- funny. Apocalypse Now. This is also where Mark's brother, I don't remember his name, Mark has two brothers, one who kind of laughs him off, and the other seriously hates Mark with a passion, mm-hmm. you can tell. And this is the brother who earlier said that, I don't see why people would find his movie special, he seems best suited for a job in the factory. And now he says that he thought Mark would grow up to either be a stalker or a serial killer. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mark I says. <laughs> Mark says his... Biggest inspirations were, and he says this like immediately, like Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like this, these movies are his religion. I think also that that is, you know, when you're dreaming about being a director or whatever, 
you know, you're like, oh, like, I know people are going to ask me this. Like, let me run through it mm-hmm. in my head. He's rehearsed this moment a million times. So fast his answer. Yeah. He, he has been waiting for someone to ask him what his influences are. He's had them ready. I actually, I wish that we got more of the, the interview scene at the newspaper later. Mm-hmm. Um, because we see clippings that he's been in the paper a few times. And I just think the way that he even turns his, his charm up to 11 in front of the re- reporter is really, it's interesting to see that aspect of him. And like, he, he plays off his positive, he, he knows what his positive traits are yeah. and amps them up in these circumstances. It's also interesting that with that reporter, he kept just being like, it's about drinking. It's like, this movie's about like drinking, you know, yes. like just drinking. <laughs> um, Mike loses $10 a day, but as he says, I've been losing about 10 bucks a day for the last week. Here's what I think of the lottery. I think it's like when you play the lottery, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But it's better than using drugs or alcohol because when you use drugs or alcohol, especially drugs, you always lose. He says, uh, er, we hear Mark on the phone with him. Uh, learning <laughs> that his AA sponsor drives him to Gamblers Anonymous meetings and they buy scratch-off tickets in between <laughs> on yeah. the way to the other meeting. And it's it's like methadone for gambling addicts. I like to think that um, while he was high, he like just went to an arcade. And, you know, this is perfect time for the winners don't use drugs. Slogan to appear mm-hmm. on the arcade cabinets. Yeah. And I like to think that it just really, like, took hold of him. And he was like, fucking right. That always threw me drugs. for a loop. I was like, what does Neo Geo have to do with the FBI? <laughs> well, they know <laughs> that Neo Geo winners don't use drugs. Right? I like how Mike talks about how he used to want to party all the time. And no one could party as hard as he did. And it made him mad. Yeah. And then he met Mark. And they could sit in the basement drinking vodka together. This, part is, this part's so heartbreaking because, like, Mike was just so lonely, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that he found a friend who's a codependent addict like him, and that's the only person that wouldn't judge him or would hang with him. I don't know, but now he's sober for 18 months at one point in this movie, but he's still attached to the hip to this guy who is, like, a terrible, terrible influence if you're an addict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mark is in heavy debt, about $15,000. He owes his dad $10,000. Uh, Uncle Bill, three. Uh, MasterCard, 500 Um, His dad won't give him money until he stops drinking and swearing. Mark's dad does not like the bad language. Yes. Oh, my God. When he pops out during the Super Bowl to say, watch your language, <laughs> well, to be fair, mind. Mark was losing his mind. Mark's like... Yeah, that's right, you motherfucker, piece of shit, factory fuckheads, I'll never be one. It's like, dude, my yeah. Mark, who are you yelling at? Oh, I agree, but also very funny still for his dad <laughs> to be like, hey, language. No, I, his, especially how his dad pokes around the corner of the yeah. wall with one arm just to point at him, like, knock that conversation off. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Mark's ex-wife is going to take his kids because he has a girlfriend. This is kind of a 
overarching plot in this movie that Mark's broken relationship with his ex-wife and his current girlfriend is like a really weird triangle that I don't really understand. Yeah. Um, here, I think we get to the point where you texted me earlier today, Sean, because uh, it's Thanksgiving. And to get ready for Thanksgiving, Mark picks up a turkey, some beer, and his Uncle Bill. They hang out and get drunk on peppermint schnapps and Sprite. Classic. The classic drink. Uh, I mean, that's Thanksgiving right there. Yeah. It's and right then, around this time. Sorry. One of my favorite scenes happens. Bill's yes. a songwriter. And Bill's a songwriter, but he can't quite remember his songs, so they kind of come out weird. But I genuinely think his songs are, like, thought-provoking and interesting. And so mm-hmm. this, this first song is like, I wish we were like we used to be. I wonder, do they smoke cigarettes in heaven? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'll visit your grave every day. Not every day, but maybe if I can find it. That <laughs> moment when he said that about his dead wife. <laughs> maybe if I can find it. That uh-huh. And everyone, you hear Chris Smith, too, cracking up, I think, in that scene. God, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Mark gives Bill a bath and then leaves him in there because he can't get him out. Bill, Bill, Bill. I'm trying, I'm trying. Bill, 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 Bill. No, 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 no. Just no, 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 no. Put your feet back. Put your feet back. Booga, booga. Yeah, well, same deal. You're a man out of control. Just look you under the armpit. Oh my God. That's a wicked ass toenail, dude. Whoa, that toenail's more than a quarter inch thick. I know. That's a science photo. Science photo. Yeah, they could use that in science class. Science class. Uh, I think Bill is saying, I'm flying, I'm flying, as Mark is trying to, like, pick him up and take him out. I thought you were saying, oh. I'm trying. Bill, at oh, this maybe. point, well, this, <laughs> hold on, Mark goes, whoa, Bill, look at that toenail. That thing's like a quarter inch thick. That could be a science photo. And Bill goes, science photo? <laughs> Just... So many wonderful moments after this. Mike walks in and Mike looks so happy. We haven't really seen Mike smile yet, but Mike is grinning from ear to ear and he whispers to the camera in secret, I won $50, but I don't want any of those guys to know because they're going to ask to borrow money. Mm-hmm. And man, if that's not another one of these scenes where it's like, this is, this is like a Greek tragedy as much fun and happiness there is every time with this movie it's then balanced back to the other side uh we get after thanksgiving bill laying down on the floor next <laughs> to the couch this and is mark so is on the couch i hope one day to be bill and have like this experience with my nephew of just drunkenly it's... bullshitting with them <laughs> after thanksgiving oh. when mark says i in my head man i see great cinema and Bill goes, cinnamon? Cinnamon? see <laughs> <laughs> great cinema in you. Ugh. Um, it's, after, it's around this time when Mark, this is where we get that scene where Mark's eating a giant turkey leg in the basement. <laughs> and this yes. is where he's like, drunk and tense, where he's like, tell me what you think. Tell me what you really fucking think. Straight into the camera. And Chris Smith is like, think about what? <laughs> and I don't know if Mark's brain resets at this point, but there's like a three second pause and then he just eats a giant bite out of a turkey leg that's been off frame the whole scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's great. It's very good. Uh, 
Mark and Mike debate where ideas come from because <laughs> Mark claims that Mike has stolen Mike Shank uh does the music for this whole movie oh, by good the point, way. Good point. Yes. Uh and Mark is saying that Mike stole it was an ACDC song. I think it was Black, uh, Black Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah, Black Sabbath uh song and so they debate back and forth where ideas come from, which once again, I think is great because the next thing Mark says is I've been really down these past couple of weeks and I'm trying to turn that into this character in the script for Northwestern. And I just love that. Like these guys are debating where inspiration comes from. And then you literally have him like my shitty life is where it comes from. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting conversation, too. And it's a conversation that I've had on my very own podcast where we were talking about the movie Outer Space, which, for people who do not know it, is a short film made from the scraps of the cutting room floor of another movie. Oh, that's and cool. It's very cool. And I think that uh, it really raises an interesting question about transformative art and where the line is for where it stops being the old movie and starts being a new movie. And uh, I think that that question that they're discussing of where inspiration comes from and is it even possible to have an original idea uh, is very fascinating. And uh, for these two guys to just be casually discussing it in the middle of this movie, was like, oh, okay, guys. (laughs) Uh, Mark's girlfriend says he wants to be somewhere he's not but don't most people want to be somewhere they're not? As Thanksgiving's drawing to a close, Mike, Mark and Mike are way too loud. They get yelled at for being too loud. So they're whispering. And this part made me think of, like, two kids at a slumber party. They're whispering. And Mike says he's thankful for the food and the drinks and for the money he won. And then this is, like, one of the few times where we see Mark genuinely nice to Mike and show his love for him, says how thankful he is because Mark didn't even want to wake up tomorrow. And Mike Shank was able to come over and put a smile on his face and mm-hmm. just uh, a really beautiful moment in this movie. The next day, uh, Mark is watching Coven COVID footage from he's watching Northwestern footage. Oh, from six years ago, from six years before. Yeah. Good Lord, man. Good Lord. And he, he talks about how, if you spend a day dreaming, it can turn into years. And I'm like, that's so like, I don't know if he's trying to be profound or he accidentally stumbles on these things and they just fall out of him like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that's one of those profound moments in the movie for me of like looking at this goal and thinking he's working on it the whole time. But really it was six years ago yeah. that he started this journey. How did you guys feel sad when he was filming the final shot of Coven and he's in the backseat of a car by himself and then his mom comes out to snap a Polaroid? Something about that moment felt so deflating because I believe his girlfriend had just broken up with him right before Mm -hmm. or right, right around that time. And for him to be finishing his project, yet it feels absolutely depressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's something very like to me, very visceral about what he's doing. Like he's laying in the backseat of this car, kind of crimped up to one end with this little Bolex uh, pressed up to his face, getting ready to shoot this last shot. And he talks about how uh, it's fitting that he's on his own doing it. 
Like he's the one who's been there to see this whole thing through. And it makes me think of specifically the movie Evil Dead and how there was a little group of people who stayed. A lot of the the actors came and left because the shoot just dragged on and on and on, which is how you get Ted Raimi portraying the females in the movie uh, at different times in a wig. Um, even Bruce Campbell plays different parts. He he's his, he's a, somebody else's stunt man, I believe, at one point. But there you had you had Sam and Ted and uh, Rob and Bruce who were this band that were inseparable. And Mark, even though he's got the support system, here he is all by himself doing this final shot. And it's just so, it does, it hits me like good for him, but also how sad and how lonely that is. You know, I think that, yes, I am sad, but for Josh's reason, in that to me, this is, so indicative of Mark's selfishness, mm-hmm. you know, the, this is for him to be like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, it's only right that I'm doing this on my own at the end here is so dismissive of the efforts that everyone else has put in, even just in the moments where it's, uh, you know, lifting his spirits so that he has a smile on his face or whatever for him to say that. Uh, his mother being there the whole time and supporting him, coming out and taking the Polaroid, even if she's not behind the camera with him, to say that he is alone in this moment, I think, um, just feels deluded to me, frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it it feels like it's so disconnected from the reality of his situation in that he has so many people backing him up at every step of the way here. And even if it is in their own unique, this is for the birds kind of way, you know, we see over and over and over again how much that they have had his back the entire time. Um, And so for him to be sitting there and to feel depressed and to feel, you know, granted, I'm sure that this is perhaps not the vision that he anticipated executing, but... For him to feel so alone in this moment when he's surrounded by people who have been working to make this vision that they don't care about a reality uh, feels uh, pretty rude, <laughs> to put it mildly. It's, I think especially given sort of we're entering the last phase of the movie here, which is Mark wrapping up the production of Coven, and you see everyone with him. You see, when they're doing the ADR stuff, he got six or eight people, again, out into the swamp to drag somebody through the swamp to do ADR. You see his mom in so many of these shots helping out. Uh, at one point, Mike's mom makes them lunches for yeah. for one of their shoot days. Uh, like, that's so wholesome and such a sign of the community coming together and having this guy's back. The fact that these actors, people like Tom kept coming back after a year plus two years Mm -hmm. of of filming this thing yeah he he has a lot of support which um and granted i don't know the time scale of a lot of these things but he does seem to have pity parties sometimes for himself as the uh, uh, the struggling artist I, i i i'm not quite sure how to phrase that one 
but he does seem dismissive of people often, especially when it comes to his pursuit of movies. The positive side that I see from this is that everyone still comes together in pursuit of this end goal. And this is something that I have seen in person. Uh, even if you've had difficulty with people like on set, I remember um, when we did Lashman, especially because that production was so drawn out. Um, it winds up wrapping up Cameron's divorce, the beginnings of my divorce into the production um, itself, like the, the time span that it took mm-hmm. and the other things we were going through um, to where we were maybe a year and a half, two years out from shooting principal photography and we had to do ADR and several of the actors have moved. So we wound up sending them, and this was like a decade ago. So we sent them mini recorders, digital recorders, little zoom H twos, I think, um, or H one N and sent that to them, FedExed it along with a copy of their scenes that they needed to do ADR for. And the fact that these people would jump on the phone, take some direction, and do their scene, and then mail these things back, there's something so amazing and pure about the drive to create, no matter what scale it is, that I think gets captured in kind of the last portion of this movie that really speaks to me. This movie closes out, the pace really picks up for this last 15 minutes or so. Uh, I think, I think this, it's a lot of fun how this movie ends. Um, seeing more just like the pace of production as they finalize it, and we start to get a lot more ADR stuff going on and a lot more post-production, the editing process and things. So <clears throat> I think the, the end of this is interesting to see that side of things. I really love this next scene that we get. Um, speaking of ADR, Mark is recording a man maniacally laughing in the living room. And mm-hmm. then there's a brilliant cut to the kitchen where Mark's family is all sitting and they're awkwardly silent, listening to this man going, oh, 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 my, oh. <laughs> it's so out of place and so awkward. But again, you see the support of his family putting up with this, you know, and, and doing with it. We move into the editing bay now. Uh, one of my favorite moments here is uh... oh, well, this is definitely a sign of voodoo. Why is it a sign of voodoo? It's an unnatural cross, Mark. It's not like a. What do you think? When Jesus was hanging there, he thought it was natural. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I love the fact that somewhere in here, um, his girlfriend comes back. Yes, and yes. you get a scene where Mark brings her flowers and she's like, Oh, where these come from? And he's like, Oh, from my job. She's like the graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) And he he makes sure to clarify that they're not like from the grave. He didn't take someone else's flowers. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I was like, Oh, he thinks the Mark doth protest too much. (laughs) (laughs) Mark's kids have moved into the editing bay with him. And I think this, as a kid, could you imagine like, oh, just having yeah. this memory of being with your dad and editing a movie and pushing the button? I know, again, I'm not going to say Mark's a good dad because we see such a limited perspective of him, but he does seem to be a capable father at times of 
doing well by his kids. Yes. Um, to an extent, I'm willing to co-sign that. I think the uh, fact that he is in so much debt and investing in a movie instead of... Correct. I, his relationship <laughs> with his ex, there's many things that tell me that he's not... I'm saying in moments... Yes, in so I think that he's cer- being... He cares about his kids. I will certainly yes. say that. He is invested in them. So this is when what, his kid has a blindfold on and says, shit, I can only see purple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you just say shit? <laughs> that was funny. Great scene. Um, <laughs> no, this Mark responds. I just want to make sure I'm not hearing anything because I have good auditory senses. Mm. <laughs> I don't care if you did. I just want to know. <laughs> um, we have to record some ADR for Bill. Bill is a diva on set. He immediately demands food and drinks. Mike gives him a sausage that his mom packed him for lunch, and then Mike hands him a can of soda. I was like, what the hell is that? And then Mike goes, here, Bill, try this. It's a new soda from Coca-Cola called Surge. Wasn't Surge, like, super high caffeine? Yes. You're loading Uncle Bill up. Trying to get him peppy. Look, we didn't even talk about the line that he was saying before. It's all right. Um, there's something to live for. Jesus told me so. Okay, great, Bill, but we gotta, we have to have fluidity in there. It's all right, it's okay. Uh, Okay, okay, cut. You gotta bring passion to it. A message, it's a message. This is for the shits and for the birds. (laughs) This is for the birds. It, I mean, it's incredible. And they try and get him to say it 30 damn times, and uh, he does poorly. The build-up to that great is great, because Mark's like, all right, Bill, your teeth falling out on that one. Everything else was great. Let's do it again. <laughs> Mike, are you keeping track? What take was that, Michaels? That was seven. And so it goes, all right, take eight. Take 10. Take 16. Take 30. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Jesus, and you can tell Bill is so done at this point that he's fucking with Mark. So hard. What does he... Oh, he says, Mark, this is for the shits and the birds. And yeah. Mike laughs. And you can tell Mark is so exhausted and fed up with everything. But he still has to laugh at what his uncle just said. So it's just this funny moment where they all break, even though Mark looks like he's run a marathon after this mm-hmm. ADR session is over. I like that Mark says, you have to believe what you're saying, Bill. And Bill <laughs> responds, why well, don't? I don't believe nothing <laughs> in what you're doing. It's just like, yeah. oh my god, man! But see, that's to me is Mark is uh, indomitable. You know, even mm-hmm. when uh, Bill's fucking with him, he says, "I don't care what you think about the movie or if you believe in it, because I believe in it, and that's enough." Yep. And I don't, I really don't feel like that's Bill being mean. I feel like that's just part of their back and yeah. forth that they've had their whole lives. Of Bill knows Mark is so full of shit that he's kind of the only one that calls him on it or something. It, that's how it feels to me. Uh, this is, uh, we get Mike's story back in the editing bay of how Mike one time took acid. Uh, there was purple webs coming out of his girlfriend and the table. He got up, collapsed and hit his head on the table, wound up in the hospital. You know how your brain normally goes, do do Mine went, <laughs> I was, I woke up after I smelled the smelling salts. 
I was reaching in my pockets because I had three hits of acid. I was going to drop the other three hits of acid in the hospital. In the hospital. <laughs> Holy shit. Could you imagine ODing no. on like acid, which was actually PCP and downer, to the point where you're hospitalized, brain dead, and you wake up and the first thing you want to do is pop the other three. Fuck. That's an addict, man. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Um... Yeah, he almost died because it was PCP mixed with downer. And he says, if it wasn't for that little bit of downer, I would have been dead. We get now, um, this is the Super Bowl is the next part. And this is where uh, Mark wants to buy him beer. Mark gets drunk during the Super Bowl. He wants to go to the bar, even though his mom's like, you're way too drunk. I'm not taking you to a bar. And he gets pretty belligerent in this scene. And it's really awkward. Yeah, Mark is yelling at the players on the TV or the fans. I've never quite figured out. <laughs> I don't. It's, I don't know what he's yelling at. Who can yeah. say? Uh, and I mean, it is such. I, I feel like both of these movies are such a picture of the American Rust Belt, mm-hmm. and that is what Mark is embodying here. Kind of the exact. I mean, Mark's an artsy dude, but you would expect like a thuggish jock type guy to be yelling at the uh, the TV in the bar like this, the way that he's going off. Uh, yeah, I never yell at the TV. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, you're from Philly. It's kind of demanded of you. Don't you sign a contract like when you move to that city of I will be the worst sports fan possible? Hey man, they hand you a badge and a battery when you say you move to the city. <laughs> and they say you get one, use it wisely. Uh, after this, we get another one of my favorite moments. It's the ADR montage of people screaming. And I myself am a screamer. I do black metal oh, yeah? vocals and stuff. Yeah, insects and just in musically. <laughs> <laughs> so I recognize you screaming exactly when I hear like- it. I heard Mike, you sound exactly like our man in this. Mike's scream is incredible. And I feel like he's flashing back to that acid trip, that PCP trip. Like, I think he goes for three seconds to another dimension of absolute <laughs> horror before he so comes primal. back. It's, it's so it, primal. It, the look in his eyes is <laughs> devoid of any location. It's It's, um... It's wild. It's wild. You might even say it's a trip. (laughs) (laughs) After this, they're doing a photo shoot to advertise the movie. And we see the super fancy actor show up and he's in a full suit with a giant black leather duster and a bright red scarf. And Mark looks at him and is like, Jesus, dude. And the guy goes, I'll take off the scarf. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, dude. Oh, man, truly uh, a cornucopia of accents in this movie. Oh, it's amazing. The amount, uh, the amount of times that man in fucks gets said in this movie is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ken Keen's dad bought them beers as kids. Uh, and then he tells the story of how his dad ran away when Mark's parents pulled up one time, uh, which leads to Ken getting arrested later and we're, uh, or I mean, later on in his life. But Mark and Mike are going to go pick up Ken at the jail. Yeah, I love this. Uh, 
the way that it kind of gets revealed that they're going to the county prison to pick up Ken, uh, it's just very kind of offhand. Um, it's not like there's no big stage setting. It's just like, oh, we've got to go get Ken from <laughs> from jail. <laughs> and then when he opens the door to the car, the documentary crew is sitting in the back. Mike and Mark are sitting in the front. And uh, Mike asks him, where are you going to sit? <laughs> <laughs> like yes, I'm sitting on top. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting in here with you from, from with you. You you drove a full car of people to pick somebody up. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh but when Mike moves there, over and accidentally jams his foot on the gas yeah. pedal. <laughs> <laughs> the uh now that they have Ken, it is all hands on deck finishing Coven. Uh, everybody is working in the editing bays. Uh, and I have to say the little room that you see him in, that you see Mark and Mike in earlier is one thing, but it looks like they're in a much bigger space later with multiple, um, like flatbed editors mm. and splicing machines. And the, like four people can go through the film all at once, kind of at this long table. And I'm a little envious of this whole setup and all the help he's got. <laughs> Said yeah. they were at the university of Wisconsin. Yeah. So I, I didn't even know they have a film program, but yeah, that editing bay looked nice. Do film schools. I wonder if they even have editing bays like that anymore. Now editing bays are just desktop PCs. I think for a while, um, you still had to do, uh, at least around here, you had to do a project on film to like sharpen your senses and essentially learn the rule that you don't keep the camera running all the time. <laughs> um, which I hate to say, but one of the benefits of the digital age is the fact that I can keep the camera running all the time. It's beautiful. It's great, especially for <laughs> interviews to trick people into saying the cool shit that you wish they said during the interview. Huh. Oh, that's that you clever. Can, yeah, it's like you, you keep the camera rolling during the post interview. Yes, and they're like, "Oh, you know, uh, tell me more about that thing." Like, but you just say it super conversationally, and they just like kind of fall into the into a different pattern, and it's great. Got them. Got your ass. <laughs> uh, they're recording audio next, and they're back at the junkyard for the last time. Uh, Mark wants Mike to shatter a windshield, but they're hitting a safety glass windshield so that shit ain't gonna shatter <laughs> mark <laughs> asks mike is it cathartic mike says very cathartic do you know what that means no <laughs> <laughs> um mark next they're on campus mark and mike have flyers mark is so specific about mike you we have limited flyers you got to post these in very specific places okay they got to be good Mike says, okay, <laughs> turns and walks off without the flyers. Mark's like, Incredible. where are you going? The casting director, casting agent, and Mike go to stack flyers. They go to post the flyers, but instead they just put them on a newspaper stack, which then promptly gets thrown away. Incredible. This moment where they come back to tell him this, the fact that they watched it all happen and didn't do anything to stop it, incredible. I love Mark says, Man, that doesn't make any sense. And Mike <laughs> goes, it did to him. It made sense to him. <laughs> yeah, because he goes, oh, he thought it was the old newspaper. Yeah. Like, what now, is that? Yeah. Ow. We're really getting to the end here. Um, we have a surprisingly good turnout to the theater. I was surprised to see that line. Oh, I have to mention, uh, 
all of the scenes of finishing up the film are, are intercut with scenes of Mark working at the cemetery. Like you get a couple shots of him and everybody editing, and then you get him like sweeping the mausoleum mm-hmm. by himself or like taking down all these flags. Um, for Boy, that moment. flag day looked like a giant pain in the ass, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. 1,400 flags, I think he says, that he has to take down. That's uh, annoying. And then he tells a story about that he got called into the bathroom. I believe it was yesterday. I was called to the bathroom at the cemetery to take care of something. I walked in the bathroom, and in the middle toilet right there, Somebody didn't shit in the toilet. Somebody shat on the toilet. They shat on the walls. They shat on the floor. I had to clean it up, man. But before that, for about 10 to 15 seconds, man, I just stared at somebody's shit, man. To be totally honest with you, man, it was a really, really profound moment. So I was thinking, I'm 30 years old, and in about 10 seconds, I got to start cleaning up somebody's shit, man existential and he, i love he says it was actually a pretty profound moment yes <laughs> it's having so an good. existential crisis looking at someone else's shat oh man poor guy uh, and then we get a title card for some reason it's like the one of the only title cards in the movie but it says that it's june 10th i only mention this because june 10th is my birthday so wow yep hey that's good to know Happy yep. birthday on June 10th. Thank you. Play this episode George when is that birthday. goes around. Uh, um, I was never born uh, like Macbeth. I was from the womb untimely ripped. <laughs> sleep no more. George murder sleep. Mm, so See, true. I can quote Shakespeare too. That's great. I'm thrilled, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm not dumb, like you say. I'm smart and I know things. I'm smart. See? I wouldn't, wouldn't it's dream It's not like everybody says. Like, dumb! <laughs> See, that's Godfather 2. I know a lot of things. That's excellent. Mm-hmm. I know it was you, Jean. You broke my heart. <laughs> I had I to like watch. It. I had seen Godfather 1 before, but I was like, God, I have to watch 2 just so I can understand all these damn references that I hear every <laughs> single week in my life. There's some kind of Godfather reference that just went right over my head. Mm. Uh, I like the fact that once again, the documentary crew sits the kids down and asks them <laughs> if they want to make films, and they're all like, no! <laughs> Immediately, just no. They see the struggle. Yeah. It's not all the glamour and glitz. It. The one kid's like, it costs millions of dollars or something like <laughs> that, and yeah, He's it's right. so good. <laughs> so we're back at the screening. Bill shows up and gets VIP treatment from Mark, says, look at all these people. These are all ticket buyers for your money. Bill still is kind of like, oh, uh-huh, sure, whatever. Uh, we get some shots now of from inside the, the theater during the f- screening, and then they edit to the actual movie, and we get to see basically a, a complete, the first 30 seconds of Coven, and then a little montage of the rest of the movie. And we Are see- you sure it's not a short? I thought that we saw the whole movie. No. No, th- Coven no, is like 30-some minutes. Oh, okay. There's uh it's actually available That's good. On That's good the, context. <laughs> it's available on the DVD. I have not watched the whole Coven film. Um but you know like we said before there's some legitimately good shots uh, in this. It 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 doesn't look as amateur as the production looked. What ends mm-hmm. up on the final screen. 
until mm-hmm. the writing happens and the ADR happens, and then it looks very amateur. But when it was just a movie with music and still images, it looked really good. Sure. <laughs> and this basically uh, wraps up the movie here. Like I said before, we kind of get final moments with Mark's mom, with Mike. This is where Mike says that really sweet thing. Yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed doing it, you know. I value his friendship and enjoy doing stuff with him, you know, and making movies is what he does, you know, and so I I make movies with him. And, uh, And then we go to hang out with Uncle Bill for the very end of this movie. And, um... Bill's final song. Uh, I don't, do you guys have anything about before we get to Bill's final line of the movie? Anything about this last scene? I think it's once again on a much different scale than Harlan County, but this is a day or so after the premiere, and Mark comes to Bill's trailer, hitting him up for money for the next thing. He's just ready to fight the next fight. Pretty incredible. Like, yeah. let's make the next one already. Yep. Dude does not stop. Indomitable. So Bill closes the movie out with a song, and this broke me, especially knowing what title card was next. You Look, man, let me tell you something. Old people are yammering and yammering about is the American dream. All they're talking about is the land of opportunity. All it is is lip service. Here we're living it, and I will be God damned if I don't get the American dream. Mm. Hello? Come again? Come again? Mm. Stay? Stay a while? Stick around a while? Stick around? As long as you can. Heaven help you. God help you. Jesus help you. Everybody else help you. Everybody, everybody make happy. Make everybody happy. Be a comedian. last three stanzas everybody make happy make everybody happy be a comedian that that's kind of like the theme of our show and the sign off of our show is be kind to yourself be kind to your neighbors take care like bill sums up a lot of how i feel about life in these last three stanzas of this movie here i think it is just that phrase um and it's the the title of a bo burnham special I don't know where he got it from, but just the phrase make happy. Just the idea of try to be that in somebody's life or to try to be a light like that in the world. Mark and Bill don't necessarily see eye to eye on what it is that causes the happiness or will bring people joy. Um, A lot of people throughout the movie have commented on the gore, the language, the 
uh, roughshod way and the roughshod type uh, images that Mark uses and the movies he wants to make. But to him, I think it is a truly joyful act, even through all the pain and the struggles and the fights with everybody. That's why he keeps going with making movies because, and he talks about it at one point, the fact that with a beer in one hand and a camera in the other, he's never felt more free. And that's what he's trying to chase is the high of that. And uncle Bill's, response here at the end or his lines here at the end i feel like there are two men trying to achieve the same goal through different means and bill at the end of his life has turned more towards spirituality and uh, is concerned with his legacy and clearly cares for his nephew as we see yeah um, i agree i think it's really great i think it's interesting um that this comes on the tail end about um, Mark asking him what his goals are. And he yes. says, you can't have no goals, even at the end of the, your life. You still have to have goals. What are your dreams, I think, is actually what he asked him. Yes. And um, for for this to kind of be, I think, included as his dreams, that's how I took it, is, you know, he, he starts off saying, like, nothing, nothing, nothing. I got no dreams. But then to have his his final moments be these very sweet sentiments, uh, I think uh, is a look behind the curtain of old Uncle Bill there, and a little a little honesty that he lets slip through right at the end. Mark's dad mentions earlier what a stand up guy Bill was and how much he looked up to him and how intelligent and smart Bill was and. What a great solve any big brother problem. he was. You know? Yes. He knew how to spell all the words. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to tell who Uncle Bill is through the senility, but he does seem to be an, a pretty incredible man, one way or another. Well, especially when we see what the title card says. Yeah. So the next shot cuts to black and it's that Uncle Bill died in September 1997. He left $50,000 from Mark to finish the production of Northwestern. And then Mike plays um, Mr. Bojangles, which has been one of the theme songs throughout this and what led off this episode. And um, it shows this montage of Mark's films of and just like goofing off with his friends being kids and stuff. And the nostalgia in this final moment here of just watching your life go by and these little glimpses and moments of growing up and Mike playing guitar and, and them drinking booze and running around with head shears and stuff. It just, it's just a kind of a profound ending to just about life. And just that kind of loss that we all experience as we look back on childhood and what we no longer have or what we went through at the time. Um, yeah, this movie just, Again, this leaves me on this melancholy note where I feel both uplifted and very sad at the same time, but I feel better about things in the end after watching this. So, Sean, let me go to George, actually. What would you rank this movie? What what do you rate it? Hmm. Uh, look, I like it a lot. I think it's a really good movie. I think... Um... I like Mark despite his best efforts. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. 
Um, and uh, I, I, I think that there's a lot of passion in, that he's putting into this project, and I can understand why he's mad and why he's upset. And I think that he's been, he's got a bum deal. And I think that this movie serves as a great call for universal basic income. And, uh, you know, people would still be out there doing stuff and would be allowed to pursue creative endeavors without the stresses of having to schlep your family into the editing bay to sleep in sleeping bags. Um, and it wouldn't have to be an either or. It wouldn't have to be dinner on the table versus uh, uh, another canister of film mm-hmm. or living with his family instead of having a place to live with his kids. Um, you know, it, it's. It, it, I think that it is uh, an indictment of capitalism and the situation that he finds himself in is uh, representative of so many people around the country. You know, I think maybe, you know, granted, I did watch this after watching Harlan County, so I was certainly primed to come into it from this perspective. But uh, I, I thought it was it was really good. And uh, even even in the moments where I disliked Mark, which did happen at times, uh, you know, he always had a, a, a moment to win me back after. And uh, so I'm going to say four, four bags of popcorn out of five. All right. Uh, Sean, where do you give it? Uh, this being my, I don't know, sixth time watching this maybe or something. And every single time I watch it, I seem to have a new experience. And I mean, just the amount of times that I laugh out loud. I don't laugh out loud at comedies very often when I'm by myself, just living alone. It's it's hard to get me to laugh out loud alone. I don't know why, but it is. But today... Why, Sean? I don't know why. (laughs) But today, in in middle of all the sadness, I was laughing my ass off multiple times. This movie is... It's it's everything that I love about art sometimes. I mean, sometimes I want art to be easy, but sometimes I want art to be complicated and for for us to s- sit here and talk about how each of us approached this movie from a different way and had a different read on certain aspects of this I, I i love it because it's difficult and i still don't quite know what to make of it so uh, this is a five out of five for me i this movie will be with me until i go meet uncle bill up by the pearly gates one day i hope um yeah, I'm right in betwixt the twain of you. Uh, no, I've pick a, a side, Josh. No, yeah. it's four. You're either no with him or you're with no me. Half what is it? No half measures. No half measures. But I do also give it a heart on Letterboxd because uh, it does hit me emotionally. Um, and this is a great... I feel like it's great for all the reasons we've said, but it also is a great hangout movie. It is a great movie to put on um, because you're just spending time with these guys. And it is very much like kind of being in a group of people. Um, You know, Mark, he's grading at times, but we all have friends like that, or we've all been that friend at various points in in our lives. Um, And I feel like, you know, the way that he's edited here, at least you get a lot of the good with what little bad you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I found it interesting that the two documentaries we talked about, neither one have been parodied on documentary now, unfortunately. Wow. I, 
I they wanted would to both be excellent parodies for that show. Yeah, I wanted to to touch on something that we could watch documentary now. Uh, so we have to at some point in time watch something like the thin blue line and then the eye doesn't lie yeah yeah that'd be fun yeah i think uh do you have since this is the first time we've talked about documentaries is there any other ones that come to mind that you would recommend uh one or two off the top of your head that you love or think people should check out Wow. Um, the first one that jumps to mind is um, Gringo, the John McAfee story, which that guy was just a lunatic. You know, <laughs> everyone knows him as McAfee antivirus. Yes. But and maybe, you know, you're like, oh, well, he came out of nowhere to like run as a libertarian in one of the recent elections. But he also. Uh, lost his damn mind and like bought an island in Costa Rica and like ran a gang on it and like took over. It's truly uh, incredible. It's it's every new reveal is something incredible. Um, but also, I um, I don't I don't love true crime. That's not really my thing. It's yeah. interesting because I am a horror guy, but I like my crime to be fictional. You know, I like I don't like thinking about. Uh, people out there uh, killing each other for reals because that sucks. Yes. So uh, I am going to do a anti recommendation <laughs> to true crime movie or yeah, true crime movies and say go watch Stop Making Sense instead, the best uh, concert film of all time. Uh, Excellent. I disagree. That's fine. You are allowed to be wrong. Oh, also, Final I haven't Francis. watched it. We're supposed to watch it together for months, That's George. Right. That's right. I know. And we still may. And also, look at this. I got a freaking little tattoo on there. Ooh, yes. It's not making sense. The title card. Uh, that's. I love that. Talking Heads are amazing. Um, but yeah, also Finding Francis, the Nathan For You documentary is... Oh. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's breathtaking on its own, like outside of the context of the show, it would be incredible. But when you take it into context with the show, and it kind of forces you to ask like what's real and what's fake uh, in a way that really only Solaris has ever forced me to do uh, beyond that is uh, it's remarkable. Finding Francis is really incredible. Especially because that was the series finale. Yeah. The, what what that, a way to go out. What that thing did to wrap up that show and Nathan for you, how the hell, how the hell do you wrap up that show and create one like overarching story? But somehow yeah. through that documentary, they did it. Uh, highly recommend. Well, I highly recommend all of Nathan for you. Yeah. Full stop. But yeah, especially Finding Francis. It's it's um, excellent. And I should also say that I was wrong. It wasn't Apollo 13. It was Apollo 11. Oh, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that documentary, <laughs> Apollo 13. Oh, <laughs> uh, shit. I didn't catch that. Um, Sean, have you seen um, Citizen Four? No, I don't know that one. Oh man, that was the Edward Snowden documentary, and boy, oh boy, that's a scary one. Yeah. Um, speaking of scary documentaries, there is one I could recommend by Chris Smith. The same one. It's called Collapse. And if you just want to hear about all the potential ways that the world could be irreparably and inextricably fucked, uh. Check that one out. Chris Smith interviews this guy who like was with the CIA and 
it, it's a pretty wild documentary. All right, also, I want to do the, one more. The fog, okay. of, the fog of War with uh, Robert McNamara, <laughs> that interview. Man, listening to a guy justify dropping a nuke on people. Yes. Pretty interesting. Oof. Um, I am going to end on brand and say oh, people should also rec- uh, watch Thomas Sankara, The Upright Man, a uh, really incredible documentary about the former president of Burkina Faso, uh, who was, in fact... A socialist, and it was a really interesting documentary about uh, how he impacted not just uh, Burkina Faso, but Africa in general, and socialist politics until uh, an untimely death. Okay. Um, I have to second my own recommendation from earlier <laughs> of, um, of course, uh, the act of killing and the look of silence. Um, the look of silence is kind of the companion piece follow up uh, to the act of killing, uh, which focuses on the perpetrators of the Indonesian mass killings from 65 and 66. And it follows up with them in the present day under the guise of um, getting some of them to talk about their, their war stories and it gets them to act out and reenact their own atrocities that they have, uh, that they committed. And there are some amazingly cathartic moments in this movie. Um, like just stunning, uh, that he takes a very heavy hand, uh, in creating these moments, but I think that it is absolutely worth the trip that you go on. Um, and it's also introduces me, introduced me at least to this whole, atrocity that I had never, uh, been aware of before. Uh, and on a much lighter note, I think probably the best documentary of all time is F for fake by Orson Welles. Mm. Uh, one of my, I mean, it's kind of a film essay more than a documentary. You could Hit say, piece. yes, but you know what? sorry, good Josh. Go ahead. The, the truth absolutely does not matter in this movie because he's talking about how do we find the truth and what is the truth? And even after layer after layer is pulled away from you, do you know the person behind it any, any better? Um, I mean, there's so there's like a, a con within a hoax at one point. And it's just, I think a phenomenal piece of work and probably my second favorite of uh, Wells' films. Hearts of Darkness would have been a cool pairing with American movie. Yes. Francis Coppola have panic attacks on the set of Apocalypse Now. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a great documentary. Josh, you're wrapping this one up, bud. The ball's in your court. Oh, see, this is going to be our our thing now, is that you throw to me, I freeze... (laughs) And then you say, but wait a second. Wait, you, you have to I let George get his, you have to let say, George get his yeah, plug in. Got to do the plugs. Great. George. Get ready, folks. Here comes some plugs. Uh, I talk mostly about horror movies, um, even though, well, I guess these could technically both be horror movies, depending on how you want to stretch the definition, which I have been known to do myself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I talk about horror movies just like this on the best little horror house in Philly the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. 
And it's a really great time for the duration of the episode. I agree with the guest that the best horror movie ever made is the one that they chose. And, uh, yeah, we talk about its place in history, uh, the context of the movie, and then we break down the themes uh, and and the plot. And then we talk about why exactly it is the best. And uh, Sean, like you said, has been on it twice himself. We're going to get Josh on there, too, at some point. You were on there for once. You were, you were, you've yeah. been on. So but we got to get your own That's solo. Right. That's where too. Josh and I locked eyes for the first time across a <laughs> lobby of 13 bearded white men. Um, uh, um, but yeah, so, so that's a really fun show that I have a really great time doing. And it's, uh, it's nice to have a little positive place to uh, talk with such comedy superstars as the Sloppy Boys and Neil Campbell and um, all kinds of great guests. Betsy Sidero, um, Alana Johnston, The Knife. Uh, she's great. And we've talked about all kinds of fun movies that aren't just, you know, the, the grim and whatever, you know, gremlins Two, all that jazz. So it's check an it out. Excellent show. I've listened to probably 30 of the hundred episodes or so. And it's awesome. You guys can definitely go check it out. It's a hours lot, of it's listening also pleasure a lot you. easier to listen to than this show because they all wrap in about an hour. <laughs> well, uh, we aim for an hour. It usually winds up being close to an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, I have to absolutely recommend uh the manhunter episode oh thank uh, you that one the the insights that both you uh, and umar brought were fantastic uh I, I enjoy a lot of your episodes they're great to for I, I go on walks with the dogs and i listen to you guys talk <laughs> oh fuck um, do you see this what there's happened a, there's a what happened thing wow. crawling on me <laughs> i all of a sudden in my in my camera there's worms on me Inchworm, it's killing it. Fuck. It's a Fulci film. Don't, all wait, of a don't kill, don't kill the inchworm. Um, well, I want to feed it to my Venus flytrap. Except the last time I did that, the inchworm then just ate its way out of the trap. Mm, Ooh. That sounds like an inchworm. Why? Why are you on me? Sorry, Josh. I'm just being attacked <laughs> by insects over here. Um, yeah, go on. Like I didn't interrupt at all. <laughs> I was just saying nice things about our friend, our friend George and Umar. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Go back. You were talking. You walk your dog. <laughs> Yes. I saw. I, I'm sorry. I looked at myself in the webcam and I saw a monster climbing up my shirt. I'm like, wait, is that in my? It was. And monstrous. then I looked down. It's real. Oh. <laughs> but uh, Sean, where can people find you? They can't find you. They can't. You don't exist they can on find the me. They can find me here or on our Discord. Yes. Um, oh yeah, Little Horror PHL. That's where you can find me. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, where where can they find you? Uh, I am at Spartacus, S-P-A-R-T-I-C-K-E-S, on Twitter. I'm at Josh.Ickus at, uh, on Instagram. Uh, I believe you can find me under the same thing uh, on Letterboxd, which is the most important of all the social medias. Um, <laughs> and you can find me at my day job doing music journalism stuff. Uh, it sounds like Nashville.com. Please, everyone, come check that out as well. And I'd like to say to everybody, be kind to yourselves, be kind to each other. We love y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.